Welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast on the Export Audio Network. I am your co-host, Neve, and I'm joined, as always, by your other co-host, Connor. Hey, hey. Uh, and today we are covering episodes one through eight of Psychopaths. Yeah. So, yeah. we have eight episodes. This, this was a decent number of episodes to watch, but uh, 
Thing about, I, I had this like fear in my soul that it was going to be like a ghost in the shell, like every episode is its own case file or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it just gets like, like, I don't know how to do ghost in the shell without like, for the most part, doing it in an episode at a time on this podcast. Um, at least like standalone complex stuff. Um, I think we tried to combine some stuff last time, but, uh, yeah. Like the second game. Um, yeah, with second gig specifically. Yeah, um, but still, uh, I was <laughs> I was glad that there's like, you get to parts where it's like, oh, okay, there's gonna be like a couple episodes about like this specific case, but also it's like all an ongoing case pretty quickly. So yeah, yeah, the plot um, gets in gear really fast. Yeah, uh, which is is one thing that I. A fairly minor thing, but uh, one thing that I do like about the series is that it's uh, it's it's tightly plotted and it it gets going really quick. Uh, so yeah, I mean, as a result, after eight episodes, you're already like you have a pretty good idea of uh, of the world and and what's going on um, in the plot. Although there's still a lot more that's gonna happen obviously yeah. yeah so with that um after watching eight episodes uh i guess this is like a two-part uh first how much did it mesh with your vision of what the show was going to be i'll let you answer that and i'll do my second part um so i it I will say, like, broadly it meshed. Um, there were a couple things that I... I uh, that, that were, like, beyond what I was expecting. So, one is... I thought that specifically it was, like, the, the Dominators, the guns themselves, that were the things that were able to do... And they do do, like, a, a deeper read and they, like, determine criminality score or whatever... I I thought that also the stuff about like sort of broadly about Hugh and all of that stuff, which I didn't quite have the language for, <clears throat> but I thought all of that was tied to the the guns and not like you wake up in the morning and your little like AI hologram buddy uh, tells you what your Hugh is for the day, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that it's just like has like deeply permeated society. Uh, there's just like a way that like everybody just sort of casually as if it's just a normal expression be like, you know, uh, Oh my, hue now's the good. time to cry because then your hue might, you know, or else your hue will get cr- cloudy or like, you know, watch out that your hue doesn't get cloudy. Like all those sorts of, um, it's just like a, a way that that there, the show's doing its best to make that stuff feel like a natural part of just the way that people talk now that it's like integrated into the way that people exist in society and talk about things. Yeah. And like perceive um, each other. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, the other thing is, uh, I thought that the dominator shot bullets. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. and so that must've been a surprise. It, at first it did the stun mode and I was like, oh, I'm assuming there is like a, a bullet mode that will kill people. But like, oh, right now it's just set the stun. Um, this is like less ex- first episode. This is less extreme than I thought it was going to be. It has, <laughs> it's just like stunning people. And then like moments later, it's like uh, causing people to Akira explode. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, like vaporizing yeah. people, essentially. <laughs> or mean, uh, when vaporizing I, when might I think, not be the right word, but like... Yeah, when I think of vaporizing, I think of like, uh, there's like a... It's like the like atoms are just sort of dissipating and it like vanishes almost. Yeah, you're like the matter is, is changing that, into a like gaseous state. Yeah, this is less that and more just like uh, Akira body horror. Like my body is like growing and expanding and then exploding. Yeah, yeah, like it <laughs> so. just yeah, my body just explodes like utterly yeah. for <laughs> for unknown reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so yeah, that part was, a, and then, uh, very quickly. And in a way that, um, I, part of me, I quickly realized this is like, oh, this is why Evan Jackson like this, this show is I didn't really know what genre of cop fiction it was going to be. Um, and pretty quickly and with, with you saying horror, I think I could have gotten there, but I, I was just like taking that as another piece and not really trying to put any puzzles together. Cause I knew I was going to watch the episode soon anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but very quickly realizing, oh, this is like a, a Hannibal, a Manhunter, like, you mm-hmm. know, Silence of the Lamb, like that kind of, uh, that very, and uh, specifically Hannibal being like the long running TV version of it. But, uh, yeah, that like, there's some parallels uh, to the, to Manhunter, uh, yeah, as well in the mind of the killer. Um, don't go you know, into the scene. Yeah, don't don't get too deep into it. The like artfully constructed dead bodies and stuff, uh, which we're gonna get to. All that stuff. So, um, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I see. <laughs> I I now understand what kind of cop fiction this is. Um. So, otherwise, uh, I was correct. It's mostly about humans. Um. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yes. there. There was the part where uh, very early much, on you very see, much so about humans. Yeah, you see the projected uh, hologram police officer, and so I immediately thought, "Oh, okay, that image that I saw of that cat person is going to be like someone wearing a hologram that's like they're like in a fur suit, basically, but hologram form." That's what's happening there, uh, and then it was like, "Oh, I get it in the." This is like the uh, internet world where people are putting avatars on. That's what's happening. And then we actually do get the first suit party. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The I was thinking that the, the spooky boogie thing might be a little bit of a, not a letdown, but like anticlimactic uh, for, because you were like intrigued with the, the mystery of like, how does this character fit in? Um, yeah, well, there, there it's was just a moment where avatar. I was like, "Are do these involve like, uh, like there are humans, but there are also like aliens or whatever?" Or is it know? like a paranoia agent thing where there's like, you know, yeah, non-human characters of some sort that are like interacted with, but that you know that they they somehow exist in the world. Yeah. Um, um okay yeah yeah i i figured by the t- the last conversation we had i i didn't think you'd be too shocked by uh by the first eight episodes but yeah oh there is- a, a detail too that i thought was was funny um is the like uh animal crossing outfit we all that everyone has um <laughs> uh 
Yeah, which, I mean, you mostly see Akane use it, but I, it seems like everybody has it, and it's just like, you're going to go hang out with friends, you, like, switch over to the casual one that you've picked out, that kind of stuff. Uh, you go to work, you switch over to your work one. Yeah, my, uh... And then I had this brief moment of being like, uh, are, is everyone just, like, naked under holograms? Is that how clothing works? And then I realized, there was the scene with the, the sofa, and they're like, you can't, like, sit on a... Hollow On couch. a hologram, yeah, a hollow couch or whatever... Um, and so it's like, gets projected over like a, a plain drab one. And I was like, oh, people must be wearing plain drab clothes because otherwise someone would like lean over you at work and then they like, would just be putting their tits on you or something. <laughs> you know, they still like want the like clothing to some mm-hmm. degree. Yeah. My favorite instance so, of this is, I think it was episode seven where, uh, Gusung Choi, uh, the like hacker accomplice of Makishima yeah. Is, uh, as, like, uh, Ordeo is preparing the body, he just, like, switches into his schoolgirl outfit and walks off. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, it's, it's a pretty, pretty good moment. Yeah. Um, um, okay, so the second part of my question, I think I'm just gonna save it, uh, for when we start our discussion of the first three because we're doing first three episodes four and five and then six seven eight is how we're gonna uh break it up so Um, which is sort of roughly doing some some uh like you know cases i guess i would say yeah we we have like a few short cases at the beginning but we then get into like longer multiple episode cases so uh do you have any other preliminary comments or Anything you want to say before um, we get into that? I guess the other thing is, uh, of other anime, the the biggest thing that I've kind of heard this be talked about um, in, like, alongside is Ghost in the Shell, specifically because of, like, the policing cyberpunk stuff. Um, and <clears throat> in, like, different from uh, Standalone Complex, one, I, I feel like... In, I don't just think that this is like I've spent more time with the ghost in the shell people. I, I think that the characters are less like uh, there's still some like decent character work that happens here, but there's less of a vibe of like, Oh, these are like a bunch of guy, you know, like the capital G guys, which I recently taught you about, um, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there, there's no vibe of like, Oh, like, uh, Bato and the major, um, and like Ishikawa, like hanging out and like that vibe, right? Um, there, I think the biggest thing is that like there isn't that same level of humor that exists in standalone complex, even when standalone complex is doing serious things. Mm-hmm. This feels a lot less, uh, funny and also like there's less like character humor of like characters spending time together, uh, sort of riffing or like joking around. Um, everybody is like more or less serious in, in this, in a, and I think like the, the humor that does come in is like often like a very dry understated humor of just like, uh, starting off the episode where you're there at the, like, um, like in the, the internet, with the guy doing like the fortune telling, and then there's like Akane's uh, avatar, <laughs> avatar that's just like this little warbly thing. 
pink pink lemonade <laughs> just looks like, or whatever. Yeah, just just looks like it will break down crying at any moment. Um, and then you just get like spooky boogie, the anarchist and stuff. <laughs> Yeah. And all of that stuff like has a certain humor to it, but it's very different than the humor of Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, the the tone. Yeah, <clears throat> there's definitely differences in tone, and uh, I agree. The like characterization, and especially um, the kind of like background, the felt background uh, of the like characters' relationships to one another is. It's it's different. Um, yeah, I think that the show uh, it does do char- uh, a good amount of like character work, and it will explore these relationships. Uh, but it has a different like pacing and uh, a different tone in like how that's done. Uh, yeah. And a- as it goes on, I hope that um, I hope the character work like comes through a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, the humor, I was trying to think there was only one time I I really laughed out loud and I've forgotten it, which sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to have to go, go back and and check. There's no real equivalent to like uh, Bato asking the major, like, do you want to go see a movie sometime, basically? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, like, trying to do that slightly. And the major being like, uh, I, am, I don't go to movies that I don't care about and, like, I don't really want to see. And then, like, well, what do you want? What about the ones that you really do want to see? Well, then I go alone. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, such a great bit of banter. Uh, yeah. It, I feel like it's, like, the closest you get maybe is some of the stuff with um, when, uh, what's his name? Um, Kagari is like cooking and he's got like the bottle of wine as well. And it's like after the, when, uh, Masaoka used like the alcohol to, uh, you know, shoot fire dispel and like the dispel. Hologram. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's like a little bit of like conversation while they're like eating and talking and stuff. I feel like that was like the most character, characterful moment so far beyond just like, Akane's like uh, avatar and stuff and like seeing a little bit of her home life and stuff. I think that also is doing some character work in a different way, but um, yeah, it, it will, yeah. Uh, it will progress. Um, I was surprised at, I think my memory of like Kogami's character yeah. was a little bit, was different uh, than than what we get like right away. Um, how should I articulate this in a way that's not uh, <laughs> getting ahead of things? Um, Kogami is just like a lot more solid of a character right away than I remembered him being. Like, I think my memory was more like, oh, he's like, you know, extremely dark and brooding and like inaccessible. Um, to to the others uh and then eventually like you know opens up or whatever to akane um yeah but you know pretty much right away he's just like the balanced kogami (laughs) that uh you know that that he that he really is um yeah or i guess balanced you know you could you could debate but the fact that he's like um you know, if immediately very uh, 
like sensitive to, uh, you know, certain like humane ideas, um, and like empathetic and, uh, and just like open about his, uh, his like frame of mind and what's going through his head. I don't, I, I remembered him being like a lot more guarded. Um, yeah. So we'll see if that's the uh, only thing that I misremembered. I do remember one moment of like sort of uh, banter interaction that made me laugh, uh, which is when um, it's Akane, uh, Shion, and Yoyoi, like the, the three women on the force, I guess. Um, I think those are like the three main ones. Mm. Um, and they're talking about like the details of the dismemberment and like making, you know, art pieces out of bodies case. Uh and Akane uh, apologizes to Yoyoi, who's like eating instant ramen <laughs> during oh, the conversation, yeah. and she's just like, "Huh? What? Like, what? Why are you apologizing for this?" Um, and then Shion's like, uh, "You know, she's she's going to be more into like the passionate, intense stuff. That's what's going to get her going." <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a good little moment. That but, is a good moment. The, so yeah, yeah, I mean, there is that stuff, and then there the yeah. thing that I'm forgetting is like, I. I remember enough of it to know that it falls into this category and it was funny. Um, but yeah, what use is that since I've forgotten what the event was? Um, but yeah, I think it is there. And then the concerns of the show, um, I, I think are feeding into, uh, the, the lack of that. Um, like the, the tone and then the relationships between the characters, uh, the fact that this is like not happening, uh, as much, um, I I think has something to do with the, the bleakness of, uh, the world of the show and then like the relationships between people in general, um, that it's trying to, to portray. Um, so I guess we'll see how that unfolds. So uh, with that, do you want to start the uh, synopses? Um, yeah. Do you want me to do uh, odds or evens? Uh, I'll do odds. Okay. So uh, we begin with episode one titled Crime Coefficient. On her first day as an ex- as an ex- inspector for the Public Safety Bureau, Akane Sunimori is assigned to handle a hostage situation under Inspector Nobuchika Ginoza, uh, hereafter referred to as Gino or Gino. Uh, a psychopath scanner has determined that citizen Nobuo Okura is likely to commit a crime. Uh, reacting to being designated for life as a late criminal, he decides to fulfill the prophecy, so to speak. Uh, by kidnapping a woman named Chika Shimazu, uh, torturing and sexually assaulting her. Uh, during the mission uh, soon to, to catch uh, Okura, Sunimori learns from enforcer Tomomi Masaoka uh, the nature of 22nd century police work in Japan, uh, which entails the use of the Dominator, um, and uh, also entails a certain type of relationship between enforcers and inspectors. Uh, to elaborate slightly, this is now diverging from the synopsis. Uh, the Dominator, uh, as we were discussing earlier, uh, is the standard issue gun, 
Uh, it reads uh, something about the criminal or the person that it's pointed at. Uh, and um, using that information, which we learned is called a cymatic scan. Uh, but obviously there's still questions about what exactly <laughs> is being uh, perceived and uh, how it's being uh, you know, evaluated. Yeah. What's the name of the uh, the Sybil system is what it's like communicating with over the Internet. Because we'll yes. get a thing, too, of like there's a, a place where the Internet's been blacked out for, you know, security reasons. And then they're not able to use it within um, that space until they like run a wire. Yep. So the Dominator uh, reads something about a person, uh, feeds that information back to the Sybil system, uh, which we will... Uh, learn much more about as we go, uh, but is essentially uh, the uh, a system of unknown nature. <laughs> at this, it's the point. minority report system. <laughs> yeah, it's the minority report system, but uh, the system of unknown nature that uh, appears to be uh, essentially we the government. That it's weird clone people in vats or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, n- no comment. Uh, but uh, it's essentially the government um, of this society uh, or, you know, the, the, the main governing entity uh, and a adju- uh, lawmaking and adjudicating entity, seemingly. Uh, and uh, again, we, we don't know uh, exactly what way it is yet, uh, but uh, controls the dominators and uh, authorizes them or directs them to. Uh, either paralyze somebody, uh, either A, do nothing, B, paralyze somebody, or C, just kill them outright, depending on how bad their uh, crime coefficient is. Um, so uh, we learn all of this. Uh, we learn that uh, inspectors are um, the, you know, the uh, police officers, essentially, uh, and that enforcers are uh, more or less um, enslaved criminals who operate uh, as assistants or as like deputies for the police department, uh, but really have no freedom of their own uh, and are um, subject at any time to be uh, killed by the inspectors uh, if the inspectors don't like what they do. Uh, so returning to the synopsis, um, the enforcers are uh, chasing Okura. Uh, enforcer Shusei Kagari finds and shoots him, uh, attempting to paralyze him. But uh, because Okura is on stimulants, the paralyzer has no effect. Uh, so Okura then flees with Shimazu. Um, and really, like, kind of hopelessly fleeing, he jumps out a window and, like, he's injured. Um, and he just has no chance to escape from Kogami. Uh and of course, Kagami um, tracks him down and, uh, as the Dominator instructs, uh, shoots him and kills him. Uh, at this moment, uh, traumatized by the events that have befallen her, uh, Shimazu also registers a crime coefficient, uh, marking her as a latent criminal. Um, upon realizing this, she flees in terror uh, for her life, um, and Kagami chases her. Uh, ostensibly to, to do the same thing. Um, Shimazu then like gets into some cans of gasoline and is like holding Okura's lighter, uh, threatening to 
set herself on fire and also Kagami, um, who was like, you know, walked up to her and is standing in the gasoline. Um, Kagami is going to execute her. Uh, but before he can, Tsunamori, who is objecting to this, um, the situation, uh, paralyzes Kaga- uh, Kagami with her dominator and then rushes to calm, uh, uh, Shimazu down, uh, and succeeds. Uh, so, uh, which allows her crime coefficient to reduce to the point where she can be arrested rather than killed. Uh, Sunimori is then, uh, called to task by Gino, uh, who has witnessed, uh, the, the end of this interaction, uh, and demands a full report, uh, for her to explain herself. Um, <clears throat> episode two, those capable, uh, you have a pretty short synopsis for me here. I'll say, uh, yeah, enforcer. Yeah. Enforcer Shinya Kogami remains hospitalized as he recovers from the dominator enforced paralysis while inspector Akane Tsunamori begins another work day. Um, enforcer Tomomi, uh, Masaoka teams up with, uh, I'm just going to say Akane cause that's how I've like thought of her now. Yeah. Uh, one of the character names I remember. It's fine though. Um, yeah, uh, Akane, uh, so Masaoka and Akane, uh, team up to, uh, take out a threat at a shopping mall. And, uh, upon their return, uh, Akane shares a meal, um, and has a discussion with, uh, Kagare. Um, and then later she goes to visit Kagami, who has sort of, uh, woken up a little bit more. And uh, he reinforces her belief that she made the right call during the hostage situation, uh, which then leads her to turn in a report being like, you know, I think I made the right call and everything. Um, You know, I have no regrets about what happened uh, and is basically cleared. I thought this was going to be like a longer running thing, but no, it's just wrapped up here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think this is also the episode where we get like, it starts with her waking up and we like learn more about the hue system, which is like, you know, as we were talking about slightly separate from this like crime coefficient, uh, where it wakes up and it says like what color your hue is. And if it's cloudy, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and we just get like general world building, you know, we also have this like bright apartment and she's like trying on different clothes. And then as she goes to leave, it just like all powers down and it's just like boring drab apartment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Um, which we'll see in other stuff as well. Um, this we is also, also where her. we get the, the hologram when they're like interacting with normal people, instead of being like, uh, human police officers, they're like wearing these mascot mascot character suits. Um, so yeah, that which are like holographic, but episode yeah. one as well. Yeah. But this has like a, a more extended part where like Akane is wearing it and being like, this is kind of weird <laughs> being in this stuff like that. So yes, yes, it is Akane. There's a moment later too, where it's like, I forget if it was in this episode or a different one where it starts raining and it messes with the, the uh, hologram thing. And so the, while talking to just like some schoolgirl or something, it like the, the cute mascot thing, like, fizzes out and uh i think it's masaoka yeah yeah and the girl just like screams and runs (laughs) (laughs) um i figure i bring this stuff up here is because this episode two felt the most like we're gonna do some more world building beyond just like those base themes uh they kind of situate you a little bit more in, in what this world is so 
Yeah. And there's important uh, stuff happening in the conversations uh, in episode two. But yeah, I think those are better. That's better discussed in the uh, in the discussion <laughs> portion than it is in yeah. the, the synopsis, because uh, there's just a, a lot to unpack. Uh, we also meet Akane's friends, um, who whose names escape me. Um, yeah, but, uh, it's an important they, detail. They might get named, but uh, I don't know if they're yeah, actually we'll, named yet. Yeah. Um. It's kind of the vibe of like the major's two girlfriends, uh, who the major is definitely dating, but is continually standing up, um, to go do police work, mm-hmm. uh. But without quite that same, um, I'm a, I'm a girl boss lesbian who, uh, <laughs> is mostly just dedicated to my work and neglecting my girlfriends mm-hmm. vibe. Uh, Akane feels more like actual friends and not just constantly thinking about, uh, I mean, we still do get her running out at one point on like, you know, a brunch or whatever, uh, when she gets a phone call, but, um. She does seem to be more actively uh, interested in her friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Akane is like, Akane is more just like when your friend gets a really hard job that takes over your yeah. life. And they yeah, just. And then you see them and you're like kind of chat, but half of it is just about how like exhausted they are and they have to leave halfway through because <laughs> their boss calls them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so episode three, uh, rearing conventions, uh, division one. Uh, this is okay. So let me let me comment on the plot synopses really quick. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I pulled them off the Psychopath Wiki. Some some are better than others. Uh, it's interesting. Like some of the episodes have like extremely detailed uh, like story, you know, synopses, uh, and then some of them just have none, and it's just like an X. <laughs> Uh, like someone, like one person is yeah. doing all of these and then just like put in a placeholder and then never got, got around to it. Um, but they were reasonably good. And then I kind of, uh, the parts where they, they weren't good, <laughs> I tried to correct. Um, so anyway, uh, yes, we do have short synopses, but, uh, I know we can, it's fine. We, we don't have to have long hair. We don't have long par. We don't need to have long paragraphs that should probably be multiple paragraphs every time. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, episode three, rearing conventions. Uh, Division one is called to the Hachioji drone plant to investigate another dismembering incident. Uh, the victim we learn is Daisuke Shiyama. Um, sorry, Daisuke. I, I don't think he's that important. I don't know why this detail was included. <laughs> And not like this, this synopsis just like didn't at all describe the like denouement of the episode in any way. Uh, (laughs) But it's just like, yeah, this like murder victim that we get his name one time and then it like he's not of any consequence. Uh, Anyway, uh, Gino and Wikis, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now you Uh, know my pain, Connor. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Finally, I'm experiencing it. but it's good because it gives us something to rip on, uh, mm-hmm. which is always fun. Uh, anyway, Gino and Masaoka. Uh, oh, I missed this failure of a synopsis. Um, this, so apologies for this. 
Inspector Gino and Masaoka have a heated disagreement, period. Moving on. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I don't even remember. Uh, yeah. Well, this is about like, so basically um, they like, they go to this factory where the drones are made. The factory is, it's like top secret. So it's cut off from the, the internet. Uh, and, and therefore the civil system, um, and all of the workers are like live-in workers. So they can't leave, uh, you know, they, they work like absurd hours. Um, it's like a totally exploitative system and they have no access to the outside world. Uh, the first thing that the inspectors want to do is go around with the, uh, dominators and just like check everyone. Uh, cause this, this would be very easy. A uh, way to, you know, um, find out who the criminal is. Uh, and the like factory manager or whatever is like fighting them on it. Um, and then, uh, Gino and Masaoka, uh, I believe this is the source of the disagreement. Um, because Masaoka wants to like, you know, be a bit more forceful. Uh, um, like with, with their tactics and Gino is kind of like, you know, uh, m- trying to be more mindful of the like bu- bureaucracy or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, Sunamore, uh, Akane, uh, asks, you know, um, about his relationship to Masaoka. Uh, and he tells her that she's a fool to treat the enforcers as peers rather than subordinates. Um, the manager of the plant, uh, who I referred to earlier, uh, his name is, uh, Kurarudo Goda. Swears the dismembering. We got a Goda. Yeah, we got another Goda. <laughs> remember, remember second gig. Yeah, Goda. I thought this was a rare name. You fucking liar. Um. Anyway, uh, he swears the dismembering is an accident, but Division One suspects otherwise when they notice a plant worker. Uh, this name I had to add in. Uh, Yuji Kanehara, uh, being bullied by the others. Um. Without the civil system, they have no way of identifying the killer. But uh, Kogami devises a plan, uh, which entails him uh, basically like confronting and accosting Yuji uh, in the manner of like the other workers who bully him, uh, accusing him of committing the crime and uh, like backing him into a corner uh, to see if Yuji will lash out using the same mo as the murder. Um, which was like a some form of hacking the drones um, to so he can control them and kill people with them. Uh, and sure enough, he does, <laughs> confirming him as the murderer. Uh, and in the battle that ensues, we get a kind of like the first uh, action-y, you know, type sequence where, uh, you know, we see um, Kogami being an action badass and like dodging the drone, uh, the blows from the drone and jumping around and stuff. Uh, yeah. But on a serious note, we see his like physical capabilities, um, that he's highly trained and, uh, eventually, uh, does kill, uh, Yuji and, uh, disarm yeah, we the get, drones. we get like, uh, Kagari and I think Yoyoi maybe are, uh, 
come to like bringing him. in the wire to to you know get the internet in for the civil system and like Kagari like drives basically some like small like fast go kart basically or like <laughs> golf <laughs> yeah, cart mining style cart. thing into one of them yeah uh, into one of the 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 drones that are trying to attack um, and then that like gets the you know the civil system online so that uh, the dominator can blow holes through both of these robots. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think they they just uh, subdue uh, Yuji, and oh, in the yeah, process, I forget if it's in this episode or if it's later. They talk to him. Um, he has like a, a card that allowed him to do the hacking. Oh yeah, that he they got do. from someone. Yep, they yeah. interrogate him. Um, I forget if that was this episode or if it's like later while they're doing it. I know there's a part later where they're investigating another case and they go and they talk to him. Um, and maybe that's, but I forget, I think they maybe get the card now and then they ask more about it later and like, where did he get it? Um, but yeah. Yeah. I think he comes up in additional uh, detail there. Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you for the correction there. Um, so, uh, yeah, episodes one through three. Um, what, uh, I guess I'll throw it to you. This is the second part of the uh, two-part question that I had at the beginning. <laughs> what uh, What's jumping out at you uh, initially watching this for the first time? Um, I get so so. One thing is uh, not to to constantly compare to Ghost in the Shell stuff. It's mm-hmm. um, a valid comparison. Yeah, I I feel like there's a lot of Ghost in the Shell stuff where um, obviously like at its core, Ghost in the Shell is interested in ideas like, uh, and especially this is true of the original, like uh, selfhood and like, uh, you know, the soul or where like that resides within the body and all of those sorts of things. Uh, that then, like, standalone complex, like, takes in radically different ways and is, like, less uh, introspective and existential about it most of the time, I think. Um, but yeah. there's, there's a lot of, like, like, Ghost in the Shell does a lot of, this is the case of the week, but then, we, we talked about this when we did the, the first season, there's also a lot of, like, subtle but important world building where, like, a small part of the case in the first episode is explaining to you stuff about how the brain cases work in relation to human bodies, because you learn about like brain swapping and everything. Um, Psychopaths comes in feeling a lot more like it is coming in hot about the specific modern social things that it wants to talk about in this like uh, fictionalized setting. Mm-hmm. It, it comes in really hot about things like, uh, profiling and mental health and um, like totalitarian like surveillance yeah, state the the like growing database of information about people and their states and like you know the the various things that you could use to do this complex profiling um that's a large part of policing but also like other part and I think this show, is smart and brings in how like we get in episode three, the way that also the same sort of system is used as a way for like, uh, promoting efficiency and like trying to manage employees, um, 
within a company in like a very exploitative way where like the the thing that is like the failure that's happening right now for this company is is honestly that like they had this working uh efficient system where there was one person who they would always have sort of be the punching bag and then once it just sort of got bad enough they would move them away and they'd move in another punching bag uh and that person might go to a place where they're going to feel a little bit better because now they're going to fit in more and they're like specifically using like their knowledge of people to bring in people who they think are going to be targeted for bullying mm-hmm. that will like <laughs> relieve tension for other people and one person will build up the tension and like maybe be doing less like not as good work as everyone else but it's only one person and that's fine and then you move them someplace else and then maybe they do well and you bring someone else in and like the failure here is that that one guy is killing people to relieve his tension instead of getting moved away <laughs> yeah that he's got the means to like actually do something to like yeah lash out yeah um but that also feels very like there are all there are these systems that often get developed specifically within like policing and uh you know military stuff as well that will often get like brought out further into just like business world uh in the ways that it can also just apply to the effective organizational um, yeah organization and like subjugation of workers <laughs> yeah so um yeah. Yeah, it does it does feel like there there's immediately more pointed metaphors about like and I mean they're they're com- it's not simplistic metaphors. Right. They are <laughs> complex metaphors, but more pointed directed metaphors about things happening in modern society. Um whereas Ghost in the Shell also gets there, but it some of it happens a little bit slower at first, I think, or there's just like general world building um and then drawing stuff out of there. So that was one thing that I noticed right away is that like first episode, like the, the whole scene of like, here's this uh, rape victim who's being traumatized by uh, the events of the police officer coming to intervene. And then is just going to be killed by the police. Um, and like the good outcome here is that she is arrested so that she can like be put into like court mandated counseling or whatever. coerced therapy. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and that's like already just like, uh, really specifically taking aim at like, th- this feels far more like the director is mad about specific things happening <laughs> in society right now uh-huh. and making an anime about it, uh-huh. <laughs> which is good. Like, it, I'm not saying that these are all, uh, downsides compared to standalone complex. Right. It's just yeah. a different. I, it's, I'm using it to like uh, emphasize something else that I think is also being done well, uh, but has this very different feel or tone to it. For so. sure. Yeah. I think the ghost in the shell comparison, I mean, obviously this is ghost divers. So uh, it's yeah. always on, on our minds. Um, and I think having like a point of comparison is a, a, a good way of bringing out, uh, you know, the, the difference via like the differences, it's a good starting point for a discussion of like unpacking what, you know, this thing is doing. Um, and I definitely agree that not only in like subject matter, um, and then like, you know, setting, um, but also in terms of like concern, uh, the concerns that it has, there's a good amount of overlap, 
uh, between Psychopaths and Ghost in the Shell. Uh, yeah. But I think the proportions are are different, like you're saying. Um, yeah. And the things that are like become very central, uh, like the concepts uh, and the like, con- and the concerns that become very central uh, to psychopaths are defined uh, and constructed like differently um, within the show. And that's like a big uh, point of, that's where I think there's a big point of divergence, even, even in the way that like, or even with the fact that, okay, yeah, like ghost in the show and psychopaths are both obviously like deeply engaged with ideas of like political philosophy and like philosophy of mind um yeah and stuff like that um you know in in ghost in the show you'll get uh almost like stylistically similar uh references to uh like like quotations and references uh to like literary works or works of philosophy Um, yeah we're gonna we're gonna get this uh i'm gonna call out one later (laughs) uh uh-huh yeah uh Uh, because they quote my guy (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I'm yes. I reference my guy. Yeah, the Teriyama reference. I've been waiting so yeah. long for you for you to get that, uh, uh, or for you to like watch that episode and then yeah. listen to you react to that. Uh, let's not jump the gun, but there. No, it we does, won't. I will just say that uh, it starts with a character uh, saying to another character, "Say, have you read Shuji Teriyama?" And the the other guy going, "Huh." T- Teriyama and I just tweeted it and like posted it on various accounts being like me at parties yeah I bet you went nuts for that shit I was just like waiting for that uh yeah um yeah I'll admit the like the the quotations and references in in this show they really get me going I just I fucking love it um like in this show more than probably any other one that I've seen uh it just like it works they work for me. Um, so I'm going to yeah. get really excited about them. Uh, as yeah, we I go. will say standalone complex also does this, but sometimes like there's that whole conversation at the end of the first season between the major and, uh, Aue, um, the Jameson conversation where, where the, yeah, they're just like throwing multiple references back and forth. And it's like, oh, we get it. You read books. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And but, we, you know, there's stuff going on with that, that we tried to, we covered that. We tried to unpack you know. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but these... These feel a lot more, like, immediately um, orienting and, like, incisive uh, whenever yeah. they happen in Psychopaths. Um, and, and a lot more moving, even though I think maybe that's a weird... Uh, a weird word to use. Um but I think it, it's the right one <laughs> for me. Yeah. Um, they're just a lot more like moving. Um, I guess like as a, as a way of framing up, um, you know, our discussion now and then like going forward from my side, um, you know, I made some, some comments in the intro episode about, the relevance of psychopaths 
um, the like increasing relevance. Um, I'll be a little, I'll like expound on that a little bit. Uh, I think like specifically for me, when I'm saying that stuff, I'm thinking about relevance within like four contexts, uh, which is, um, you know, first one, like totalitarianism and like surveillance, uh, like the surveillance state, uh, and, um, you know, authoritarian or like totalitarian, um, regimes, uh, number two policing, <laughs> which is, uh, very closely, uh, you know, related to, well, all, all of, all of these four th- things are closely related. Um, but policing, uh, as an arm of the state, um, and then just as a function in like any state, uh, number three, mental health. Um, so the, uh, I'll just say, you know, mental health epidemic um, that exists in in our society now um, and then also in, in the world of psychopaths. Uh, and then the mental health uh, regime um, that, again, <laughs> in our society and in psychopaths. Uh, and then um, violence, um, specifically like public violence. Um, whenever I think of psychopaths, I think about, uh, mass shootings in our society now. Um, and, um, the idea of, um, to, the, to use the word random is a loaded word. Um, but the, like this rash of, uh, you know, extreme violence, um, you know, t- taking this form. Um, yeah. And so these four contexts, I think, are all, like, spoken to um, by psychopaths. And it has uh, many, many things. Uh, it offers many, many things to consider <laughs> about uh, all of these, uh, all of these, like, concerns and then their, like, interrelation between them. Um, yeah, and I'll um, you know I'm sure we'll unpack this more as we go along. Um, I think to like hone in a little bit more. Um, I'll just say, uh, nowadays in U.S. society, um, it seems to me that many like corridors of our society uh, are like fixated on the idea of safety or like increasingly obsessed with it. Um, While the social fabric uh, is like, you know, (laughs) fraying and uh, paradoxically um, becoming uh, more unsafe. um, And, uh, you know, simultaneously, I think there's this sense of like increasing powerlessness um, in the face of a kind of like, you know, technocratic uh, centralization. Um, so just extremely powerful, like technologies, um, you know, surveillance technologies. Um, but, uh, you know, you can also put any number of other, uh, you know, systems in place there um, that, uh, 
these systems and then like their ability to be wielded by um, the powers that be or like, you know, undemocratic uh, regimes um, is uh, a a serious problem (laughs) for uh, individual uh, freedom um, or, you know, the freedom of the, uh, the collective as well. Um, yeah. And that there's a sense of uh, helplessness um, that, that goes along with that. That is a huge challenge um, for, for us now. Um, and uh, I think causes a huge amount, a uh, uh, significant amount of stress, um, collective stress. Uh, but then in conjunction with this, um, we also have like, an increasingly centralized and technocratic mental health regime that uh, we have bestowed an immense amount of moral authority on. Uh, and I'll qualify this by saying, like, I'm not against um, mental health care. Uh, I've received it many times and uh, benefited from it. Um, so... I think this series has some uh, critical insights on like mental health uh, structures. And I'll also like, I have, I have some opinions on it as well um, that I'll, that, you know, I will eventually like reveal in the course of our discussion. Um, But I do want to firmly plant that (laughs) Uh, firmly acknowledge, like I'm not uh, against, you know, uh, mental health care and of course it's uh, very you know it's valuable and important uh yeah. and and needed um but um, i think there's deeper questions uh around these things um and the idea of like an uncritical uh relationship to a specific uh mental health regime or uh you know a mental health regime that's structured in a specific way, um, as, as any existing one is, um, that, uh, yeah, there, yeah. There's also like within, uh, modern society, like, a a fixation on mental health stuff that, the, it, this is like an extremely complex thing. So I'm going to do like a, a very, very simplistic, simplified thing. Um, of like in an example of this, of like people being like good vibes only or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, um, the, there is like a, a certain kind of fixation that, um, like, I, I think that like self-care is an important concept. I think there is also a way that self-care has been twisted into, um, it means that like you go and you just get your nails done or whatever. You know, like, it, like this very like consumptive mode of what self care means, um, and this this very like specific uh, sort of social idea of it that goes beyond like actual, you know, therapy with with somebody who like has trained in this and is familiar or 
um, actual things that are like involving even a, a interpersonal or like uh, introspective to um, like solitary concern about like investigating your mental health, but that like simplifies it down to mental health apps on your phone. Um, or I, I think like often the most insidious version of this is um, a lot of the kind of mental health stuff that's often uh, provided by, by companies through like HR systems or like affiliate systems that, that are to get you back to work geared, as quickly as possible Yeah, towards getting you back to work as quickly as possible towards yeah. making you get back to a productive state and mental health as um, not like other, I think more uh, complex, but like getting to the core of like the human ideas of mental health and models of mental health that are based around like productivity as the goal. Um, the, the like being able to be a part of a functioning society and that specifically meaning able to hold a job and like not be a threat to people. And that is like the goal, um, for, for a lot of like mental health systems that exist, uh, especially within like corporate worlds. So, yeah. Yeah, and and to go along with and then that. also the writing off of those people who who cannot be put into. Um, I'm thinking now of uh, this film, Angels of the Universe, which is an Icelandic film. Uh, a bit hard to find, but if people do want to see it, uh, just contact me, like DM me or something. You know, post in the Discord. I can I can find a way for you to watch this movie. <laughs> Um, but it's, it is specifically a movie about like, uh, mental health, about a, a character who develops, uh, schizophrenia. Um, and a lot of it being about the, the way that like, even in like a liberal society that has like a, a space for these people, it it is about like, um, often the cycle of going from, the like inpatient care to uh whatever job you can hold down and that's the goal and it's just how long can you do that but also like inevitably you're probably going to end up back in inpatient care uh and when you're in like those jobs nobody like really cares about you as a person it's just about the labor that you can do uh i think it's a, a really smart film about that uh really incisive film about that um but like often these models of, of mental care as well don't really know what to do with the the people who never will just be a uh quote unquote and this is like heavy scare quotes normal functioning person in society mm -hmm. you know um and when you bring that up against policing that often means the police kill them and then they're out of the society <laughs> yes um in like the the most horrible way, but like this is well documented and very depressing. Um, yeah, and so. everything you just said uh, bears to an immense degree <laughs> on what we witness in psychopaths. Uh, yeah, I think all of that is part of the critique. Um, and I, I think another important thing that's happening in psychopaths, um, especially because another thing that I thought is I thought all of the police officers were sort of pulled from this class. Um, you know, the, the people with crime coefficient who are labeled latent criminals. 
Um, I didn't know that terminology, but I thought that was everyone. But there is like the inspectors who are not, and then the enforcers who are. Yeah. And the enforcers are usually the ones expected to pull the gun on the criminals, and the uh, inspector is there to pull the gun on the enforcer if it needs to be done. That's kind of the general vibe that gets set up here. Yes. So it doesn't mean it's always true, but that's kind of how it plays out again and again in, in you know, the first episode sets this up and, uh, and I feel that like that seems to reinforce it. That seems to be how it's understood by the individuals yes. as well. Um, and I think that's also then getting into, one, the the way that, like, <clears throat> uh, those who are, are, are within the police force are also... Like, there are issues with, uh, you know, traumatization and mental health and things that occur within that. Um, but then also, I, like, some of what we get when we get uh, Kogami talking about it, like, we, we get, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name again, Kagari. Uh, he talks about, like, basically as, like, a kid. He was basically, like, labeled as a delinquent. Like, you know destined to go into crime and so this was like his one job his one like legitimate job that he could take is being yeah. an enforcer his rates were like um, stripped at that moment <clears throat> yes just like as a kid being identified as a latent criminal um and some of this i th- i think is dealing as well about like people within minority groups who sort of get pushed into police work as like the legitimate thing to do um i think we haven't gotten too much of Kaga- Kagari, but I think some of it could deal with that. But so far, the most we've gotten is Kogami, who was uh, uh, an inspector, has now become an enforcer. And specifically, the stuff that he talks about is around, like, um, you know, staring into the abyss is, like, the thing that gets brought up. But, like, some of it is, like, um, him... We get these moments of him seeming to identify with, like, well, of course, this is how these people are going to act within the city. Like, there's parts where he seems to question the civil system as a thing. Yes. Um, And it, it, you know, there's there's a degree to which, like, is that the thing that is actually marking him now as latent criminal and he's been put in here? Is that the Mm -hmm. fact that he is willing to... to, to uh, question the civil system or willing to, in some ways, um, identify with these people. Uh, and we sort of get Akane as like the, this, uh, maybe there's a threat of that, but also like a bit of an invert. But we, we get the similarity between them because like first episode, she's saying like, no, don't shoot and kill the rape victim. <laughs> like, yeah. why are you doing that? Don't do that. <laughs> Um, which is also its own questioning of the system because the gun's saying shooter, uh, you know. Right. And this is a very, so. uh, and a, a, clearly a very significant moment of her mm-hmm. making this choice and then her shooting Kogami to stop him. Um, yeah. I When I was taking notes for this, um, I had like a, a little bit of fun with it. And I was like, I'm going to do like a very... <laughs> Uh, like screed like, uh, like a- as these notes just like come to me, I'm gonna rate them in the way that feels right. And uh, yeah. in keeping with the show, well, a lot of times I would do like very like screed like, like all caps, um, uh, partially just because like I feel like that was the you know communicating uh 
better <laughs> uh, what my feelings were, uh, but also to amuse you. Uh, and one of the like all cap sentences I have is the moment of Akane shooting Kogami has deep symbolic meaning, um, which you can pick up because it's continually referenced in the OP. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we can think more uh, about like that decision that she makes and the, um, the conditions allowing for that deci- decision. Uh, and then also like the significance of it. Um, I guess a couple things before we like, you know, maybe return to the episodes. Um, and, and this is just, uh, from everything that, you know, all of the discussion we've just had, uh, I think you've identified a lot of, a lot of key things. And for me, um, they relate to some of some questions that I, I think the series is asking um, that we will continue to ask um, such as what is the nature of mental health? Number one. Uh, number two, what is the relationship of meaning uh, in collective and individual human life? Uh, ethics and mental health. Um, so what relation is there between those three things? Um, and then, you know, number three, uh, what assumptions and dynamics are existing, um, perhaps like unexamined, uh, within the specific forms of mental health intervention, um, or to use a more like, um, argumentative term, uh, the specific form of mental health regime, um, that is currently existing at any given moment. Um, so, you know, again, as we discussed the specific like structure of whatever our mental health system is, um, you know, what, uh, what elements are, are with contained within that, what basic assumptions about, uh, the previous couple questions, <laughs> uh, are like driving that regime, uh, and structuring its, uh, its form of like, uh, the way that it's comprehending men- mental health and treating it. Um, and then the outcomes it's trying to achieve. Um, so, you know, that's, that's all there. Um, and then also what's the nature of crime? Um, which I think we begin, we began to, uh, kind of scratch the surface of there. Um, so, um, I would say those are some, like a few questions to like orient, uh, that for like, for me, orient my understanding of what uh the show is doing yeah um and um you know one additional thought uh on the mental health side you know what does it mean if um there are forms of of mental health intervention that are and and i say this having experienced it um even as I've like experienced like good and helpful, you know, mental health care that's helped that has like legitimately helped me. Um, I've also witnessed this, um, forms of mental health intervention that are more about like uncritically, uh, placating you in like whatever your circumstances are, um, or making like 
you know, superficial uh, changes um, or you just having some like, you know, superficial um, treatment or intervention um, that is solely designed to just like, you know, make you content with who you are and what you're doing um, without regard for like, you know, if there are actually problems <laughs> with, you know, who you are uh, and what you're doing, um, that those concerns are just completely taken off the table uh, in favor of like, you know, again, like, well, let's just make you, you know, happy again um, and not like uh, lead you to uh, to ask these deeper questions. Um, yeah. And we get like, I think psychopaths gives us, uh, the most like insidious and, uh, like horrific form of that imaginable, uh, with the Sybil system, um, which does that, uh, and then, you know, does, does a lot more, <laughs> uh, it, along with that, um, that, that causes some, uh, some, some serious issues. Yeah. Um, do you have any other specific stuff you want to get into or do you want to go to, I know there's like some conversations in, in episode two, especially that we could get into, but, um, we're also an hour and a half in, so I don't know. I don't know how much you want to move on. Yeah. Um, so in episode two, um, the Masaoka and Akane conversation, um, Masaoka is basically like, you know, my crime coefficient is high because I understand the criminal mind. Um, this is related to the, the repeated warnings we get about like, Oh, if you look into the abyss, it will look back into you. Um, and so on. Um, really what stood out to me is like, what this means is that Masaoka has a connection to and empathy for criminals. Um, which is why he can understand him. So the connection itself is the contamination. Uh, this like dreaded, uh, you know, hue contamination that happens and that is, it's to be avoided. Um, so what this is telling you is that, uh, you know, having a, like too deep of a, uh, too deep of an empathy <laughs> for criminals, uh, is like something that is disallowed um and something that uh you know the the specifically disallowed by the civil system um and that if you do that it will mark it will mark you um as a criminal uh so this this will probably be important i'm guessing yeah <laughs> as we go um with kagari and akane um you already brought this up but um you know kagari reveals that he was marked as a uh, latent criminal when he was five. So uh, he, re he had no choice. Like his rights were stripped and he was um, essentially imprisoned and, and forced to do this work. Um, whereas Akane um, seemingly has all of these, you know, she could have chosen any job or any, um, you know, position to take. 
Yeah, because um, another thing here is that you get like uh, a ranking on basically your placement in like various government institutions and companies and things. Um, and we learned that Akane had uh, a ranking in like 10 different things or something um, like, you know, three like government organizations and like seven companies or something. Um and the reason why she chose this one is that uh, at all the other ones, there were multiple people who had A rank uh, in her like uh, class at university or whatever. Um, but this, uh, like working here in this job, she was the only person who had the A rank. Nobody else did. Um, and so she was like, well, if I'm the only one who has the A rank, like other people could do the job as good as me, seemingly, uh, like in some ways fully buying into what this system is saying about her and everyone's <laughs> abilities and saying like, uh, there are other people who could do that job at, uh, Lockheed Martin or whatever, whatever <laughs> the company is <laughs> that she was also getting a, an A rank in, but uh, the system saying I'm the only one who, who could do a rank job here uh in the you know um what is it division the bureau <clears throat> yeah the bureau the police yeah uh and so that's why she does it um but then as you noted in your your notes here there's sort of a uh additional inversion you know we talked about uh kagari and kogami where kagari like basically since he was five or whatever has been destined for this uh Kogami, um, he, uh, being inspector and then sort of getting demoted, uh, because the enforcer thing. And then we get like Akane here seemingly having all this choice, but then specifically also being flagged by the system for you should be here. And so she goes there. Um, yeah. So there's a, uh, an element of uh, coercion <laughs> there mm. uh, or manipulation that, that seems to be operating. Um, the other thing in this conversation is Akane uh, talks a lot about her desire to find like the meaning of her life um, and that she chose this, um, you know, as you're saying, she chose the police job because she thought that's what would, uh, that would reveal the meaning to her. Um, and Kagari is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like the meaning of your life. <laughs> like yeah. there is no like Sybil, the Sybil system tells you what like the meaning of your life is like that. This is an antiquated concept. Um, Like the Sybil system will tell you what you need to be happy. And then you just like do that. You don't need to worry about like what the meaning of your, of your life is. Like this is an absurd notion. Um. Yeah. So something uh, we get this idea in episode two, and it's something to to keep in mind, um, which you know ties into our, our preceding discussion as well. Yeah, um, I think in terms of episode three, we've kind of touched on the main stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I think there's stuff about yeah. like you know we're getting some. Um, we're starting to get some of the, like the show's unpacking of the idea of like, what is the nature of crime? Um, with, uh, uh, Kanehara, um, you know, being like, yeah, 
put put Elmas into this like sacrificial position. Um, yeah. But again, we uh, we discussed that earlier. Um, so yeah, I think just to underscore that this is like bearing on um, the series having this kind of critical idea of like you know crime itself as a constructed notion, and then criminals. Um, the process of you know how criminals are labeled uh, and created uh, is something that it it's looking closely at. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, do you want to move on? Uh, I know that we we definitely took some time with the first three episodes without really talking about the first three episodes. Um, yeah. But I think it was good to get some of the big the big picture stuff. Yeah, I think it's good to move on. That too. Okay, so uh, episode four, this is you. Yeah, so episode four, nobody knows your mask. Uh, Division one attempts to find the culprit behind the murder of a man known online as the popular avatar talisman, um, now controlled by his killer. Uh, so this is the, before this happens, uh, Akane goes and talks to not knowing this has happened, uh, talks to Talisman uh, as her warbly little avatar uh, and gets some advice about, like, you know, um, how to get along with uh, Kagami, Kogami. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then they find out, oh, the, the man who controls the popular avatar, Talisman, is dead. And Akane's like, what? <laughs> I talked to him this morning. <laughs> um. So, uh, Akane then goes to investigate because, uh, basically it seems like out of everyone in the, uh, in this department, Akane is the only one who watches VTubers, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, Akane is like, yeah, I know about VTubing. Let me handle this. Um, and goes in to, uh, investigate, follows Talisman to, um, uh, another, I think they, is it called Camo Fields? Is that the, like whatever the, i think the so VTuber like the channel. chat the chat room yeah yeah the, the, ch- the chat room whatever um so they go over to a, another avatar named spooky boogie um who's great i love spooky boogie mm-hmm. uh and spooky boogie recognizes uh akane from her avatar um again i forget the name of the avatar but it's yeah, lemonade something candy, like pink lemonade lemonade candy yeah. i think that's what it is um, and, uh, pulls her into like a, uh, basically a private chat. Um, and they talk about things, make this plan to expose the murderer. Um, Akane's like, I'm surprised you'd help out the cops. Like, aren't you an anarchist? Uh, she's like, you know, like, <clears throat> not basically really. I think, yeah, <laughs> one, like not really, that's kind of just a character that I play. Uh, but also I think like somewhat uh makes sense like hey what you're suggesting is that like there's somebody killing avatars like <laughs> i don't <laughs> want that person to kill me uh unfortunately these events are going to get her killed um but anyway uh yeah so the the ploy goes awry uh we get this part where they they go to like a in-person meetup where everyone's wearing uh avatars uh but the whoever is working with talisman um, who we're going to learn about more later on, uh, involves, uh, Makishima, who's like, seems like at least so far the main antagonist. Um, and then I think also, uh, 
Gungsun or Gu Sung Choi is uh, here as well. Um, and uh, they sort of predicted that, uh, you know, the police were going to raid this party. Um, they do this thing where everybody is now talisman to they like hack the hollow. Yeah. Uh, they hack all the hollows so everyone looks like talisman so that the real talisman can get away. Um, in in sort of the chaos and they won't know who to to test for and also like a lot of the people who will be going to this are probably uh you know leftists or something who are going to get flagged as latent criminals (laughs) so of course Um, they just start shooting everybody yeah and it seems like most of them is like uh stunning but there's still a lot of people being taken down here and they do not get the actual killer who they want, uh, who then goes and, um, kills the, who we also learn, uh, spooky boogie is the like actual person who has the avatar, uh, is like a former classmate of Akane. Um, and, uh, I think this ends with her being murdered, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Makishima, uh, give Spooky Boogie to the the other guy, who I, I forget his name. <clears throat> uh, Masutake Mido. Yeah, Mido. Yeah. Um, that leads into episode five, which is titled "Nobody Knows Your Face." You see what they did there? Mm-hmm. Nobody knows your mask. Nobody knows your face. Um, Gino uh, and the team nearly get ambushed when they track the murderer to a bomb rigged hideout. Um. Let's rewind here. <laughs> um, there is a disagreement uh, within the uh, the team uh, between uh, Gino and Kagami about how to track this criminal. Uh, Kagami wants to use profiling, basically. Uh, and Gino is like, oh, we'll just trace his like IP address or whatever, his access routes. Um and then we'll find out, you know, where he's accessing from that way. Um, so they're like, okay, that's fine. You do your thing. I'll do mine. Um, so Gino's, uh, what in the course of this argument, it's noted that the, uh, the killer seems very confident about his ability to conceal his, uh, his identity and his location. And Gino is like, yeah, whatever, whatever Kogami, like, I don't care about your psychological insights into these criminals it's all just speculation um we'll just use the you know we'll just use like our cyber crime shit to find this guy go play with your wife and kid on a beach already <laughs> <laughs> apologies to anyone who's not seen manhunter <laughs> uh, so anyway uh you know uh follows this path and uh unsurprisingly uh it turns out that kagami's right uh he walks right into a trap and uh him and uh kagari and yayori uh i think it's the three of them um like go to a bomb rigged hideout and it explodes and they almost die uh meanwhile kagami uh has uh conducted a very complex <laughs> uh analysis of the uh of akane's chats with spooky boogie um so what he's done is he's looked at um he he's replaying like the conversation that Akane has with um, the version of spooky boogie that is controlled by the murderer. Uh, and he's comparing it to like the language uh, that spooky boogie's using in that 
uh, chat to the language that Spooky Boogie customarily used <laughs> uh, in like all you know all of her prior uh, you know chats uh, over the yeah. last however much time. Um, and so in doing that, first figures out yes, Akane, the Spooky Boogie you're talking to was the murderer, so the actual Spooky Boogie is dead. And now we know more or less when, when, you know, she's like when he took over. Um, then following that, uh, like, uh, deduces the other avatars that have been like taken over, um, by Mito. Uh, and I won't go into all the details, but, um, is able to narrow down that, that Mito is the one, um, based on like you know who was the one person who uh like watched this vtuber uh a lot before they like died and then stopped after they died uh and then the you know he's the only one that overlaps between between all of them all of the three uh cuz there's like a third one that that emerges yeah anyway okay um <laughs> So they've uh, they've now discovered the identity of the murderer. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Mido receives a warning from Gusong Choi not to disappoint Shogo Makashima. Uh, what do we think he's going to do now? Um, he's definitely going to disappoint Shogo Makashima. Uh, <laughs> um, it, that's a death flag. Uh, Masaoka, uh, Akane, and Kogami close in on the suspect. Uh, Mito, and uh, they they do find out like where he is. They, he's living at it. It's at like his parents' house or something. Um. So they find him and uh, they shoot him um, as he's running away and like blows his like, arm off. Blows off one of his arms, basically. Yeah. Um. So. Oh, sorry. He's at like his main. He's at like one of his apartments, and then he's flee. After he gets shot, he flees back home uh, to, like, his parents' house. Uh, but they know he's going there. Um, so uh, he arrives first and is, like, you know, seeking the comfort of his avatars. Um, it turns out that the avatars have a much deeper meaning to him. Uh, ho- hopefully we'll, we'll be able to talk about this a little bit. Um, yeah. And is, like, you uh, know, seek. Yeah. Go ahead. A little, a little uh, Astro Boy, Bug Boy, uh, Mega Man Boy <laughs> uh, asks, "Say, have you read Shuji Teriyama?" <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a this is an amazing yeah. scene. Um, but uh, yeah, he's like seeking the comfort of uh, of his avatars, which he, you know, it's revealed that he's obsessed with the avatars themselves. Um, and uh, as he's like, you know, trying to gain this comfort, uh, uh, Cho- I think it's implied it's Choi, uh, like cuts the avatars over to uh, Makashima, um, and Makashima then like speaking as the avatars, um, like essentially tortures uh, Mido, um, in the in the moments before the uh, the police arrive. Um, and then the, uh, the police do arrive. Uh, I can't, I, I think they do kill him. Is that right? Or do they just like arrest him? 
Um, I think he might be killed. I don't remember though. Um, I I think I think he is. Um, yeah, I think they. Um, I think they do kill him, but um, I'm not going to look it up right now. <laughs> uh, I yeah. started to, and I'm like, no, I can't. I can't do that. Uh, we'll 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 say that they do. Um. Uh, let's see. Um, afterwards, uh, Gino reveals to Akane, um, that his earlier statement about like not having relationships with enforcers is, uh, coming from this prior event that happened with Kagami. Um, uh, Kagami actually, it, it turns out used to be an inspector and was, uh, Gino's partner um we've been talking about this and it has not come up yet but yeah <laughs> yeah 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 uh it's revealed here uh kagami yeah. used to be an inspector he was Gino's partner uh but after the events of the specimen case uh in which his own uh enforcer uh was was killed um kagami's uh crime coefficient rose above acceptable limits and he was demoted to an enforcer yep um, do you want me to talk a little bit about Teriyama Shuji? Yeah, please, please do. Um, so notably, uh, I didn't talk that much about Teriyama Shuji when we did Utena, <clears throat> uh, but it is a, a really massive influence on Utena. Um, especially, uh, pastoral, there's like specific images that Utena steals from, from that film. Um, and I would say, uh, Outside of Japan, um, he's mostly known for his film work, most primarily because it's like slightly easier to access. Um, he is this figure who uh, I feel like is not um, particularly well known or or like broadly seen. Like even within Japan, I don't think he's like you know he's not like a. a popular director that lots of people have seen but he is like a an extremely notable uh art director uh and in japan uh, he did a lot of stuff uh in theater like his, his films are actually he did stuff for theater for a long time um before he then made some films there's also a number that he's written uh he's also written like poetry um I think like some more uh, straight like stories and things like that. Um, did some photography. I know he's like written some essays. Uh, so one of his movies, throw away your books, rally in the streets is a film based on a series of essays that he did. Um, anyway, all of this to say, I, I think a, his work is often, um, I think appreciated by like the sort of countercultural art types like, I, I think a lot of artists in Japan seem to appreciate him or think about him or care about his works more than, like, the common person is the impression that I get. Um, and so uh, there are a lot of directors who will really enjoy his work in the same way that, like, you know, in America, there might be people who really care about, like, a, a fairly obscure in terms of broad uh, cultural, like... like- you know, Cas- Casavets, 
Cassavetes. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, versus Mostly like Spielberg. But a lot of directors probably have seen those films and care a lot about those films and might say they're influential. Um, and I feel like Terry Yamashuji is especially influential for a number of, of anime directors. Um, I see like stuff from his work uh, show up explicitly with some directors, but I think there are other like showrunners and directors who I, I can see like a certain influence come in. Uh, I've talked about him when we did uh, Serial Experiments Lane as well. Because I think there's a certain sensibility there that's coming from, like, not just Terry Yamashuji, but sort of Terry Yamashuji's era of, like, the the um, ATG, the, the art theater guild that existed in Japan, which was sort of this uh, guild around uh, theater and cinema and, like, crossing over between those and doing a lot of independent cinema, stuff like that. Um, all of this to say, I'm I'm familiar with, like, a lot of sort of general stuff that Terry Yamashuji was concerned with. I haven't read the specific play that gets uh, called out in this. Um, is this which Farewell is, to uh, the Ark? So I think, so he says, uh, Saraba Eiyo. And I don't know if this is the same one as Farewell to the Ark. Because um, I, when I like looked this up, first time I watched Psychopaths, I looked, I looked it up because I was so like intrigued. I couldn't find it and yeah. I gave up. And then this time I so was farewell. Like, so he has another one that has Saraba in it. Uh, that's farewell to the Ark, but it's something else. But this is farewell to movies or like okay. to the movie. Um, and uh, from what I've been able to find digging this up, uh, essentially the this is a, a play that he wrote. Um. And the, the bulk of the play is a conversation between two gay lovers. Um, and part of the conversation and the part that's specifically getting quoted here is this thing talking about uh, the way that human beings. Uh, and this is me like with my general knowledge of uh, Terry Yamashuji and then like what summaries I was able to find of this play stretching a little bit and expanding, but my guess is some of this is talking about the way that, uh, human like individual identities or like human identities become fractured into these different selves where there is, uh, the agent that is an avatar of the, like the other self that like someone more often thinks of themselves to be. And so the, the like example that comes up in it that I I've seen uh, in, in two different summaries mentioned is, um, that like the core of the human being is like, uh, this taking care of the self and like doing these things that you need to do, but also you will make connection, like even small connections with other human beings in order to have those people do those things for you. And they, the main example is like when you are hungry and you do not want to cook, you, like you don't want to grow the food and you know do all of this process like maybe you go to the restaurant and another human being acts as an agent for you and makes the food for you and serves it to you and then you eat the food and that agent is a, like an avatar or a persona of another human being who has these other things that they do for themselves um this is like a performing self yeah in, and in and will to you. Yeah, and will like take on other agents in their lives 
to, to do things for them. But part of like that, that sense of self involves having the part of you that is the agent to others be like a, a specific avatar that you put on. Um, that like in that moment you are doing like you, you are intentionally fulfilling a role. And that is like a, a fracturing around of the self that's happening when you are like doing that thing for someone else versus for yourself. So <laughs> fascinating. This is the whole thing that the, this is like what I'm able to understand from, uh, trying to find copies of this play and stuff. Yeah. Um, that, so go by way of responding to that, <laughs> cause yeah. I think it's related. Um, especially like when I, my interpretation of, um, this reference which is based only on, on like what is said uh, about it by Makishima, um, relates to what for me is one of the like predominant themes in this entire show, um, and that is the theme of recognition. Um, this is probably like I regret that I didn't say it at the very beginning. Because I feel, I, I strongly feel that this is the, again, one of the predominant themes of the show uh, yeah. that is like um, interacting with and illuminating uh, or like driving the, uh, every, a lot of what's going on with all these other concerns. Um, and I won't fully like try to unpack it here because I think I'd, I'd prefer to do that as we go. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll say this of what specifically said on the show is you should redisplay Saraba AIO. It seems like everyone is an agent for someone. And further, those agents have their avatars communicate in place of them. Um, and then I think that's when Mito says, are you Makishima? Mm. <laughs> uh, and then I think he like, doesn't answer. Uh, yeah. And he's like, yeah, the, the hunting dogs, the harbingers of death are coming for you. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, um, I, I want to like underscore, um, that idea, um, because I think one way of reading this, um, the way that Makashima presents Teriyama here is like a world where, um, like social recognition has broken down to a degree or that there's like a crisis of recognition, um, where like, you know, you have these fractured selves, um, to the extent of like, you know, everyone is an agent of someone else. Um, so then like, uh, the agency <laughs> of any individual, uh, is, um, it is, you know, somewhat, uh, untrustworthy or like in dispute or something. Um, now again, I think your uh, like expounding of it um, probably is is more accurate uh, and gets it goes in a, a different direction slightly, um, but I think it still ties in uh, to um, to the the larger uh, idea of like this has something to do with um, identity like the relationship between identity and recognition. And then that like situated within uh, 
like a social bonds. Yeah. And also like a, uh, an alienation from, uh, from like work or one's role that like part of everyone being an agent to someone else. And this specific, like, I think it's important that, uh, it seems like the example given is like a restaurant and not like your friend cooks for you. Mm-hmm. Because I think like there, there can be something different happening there, but like a restaurant is like a far more transactional, like this person is being an agent for you. Um, and that is then the situation where like the, when you are like employing the agent in this way, that agent, uh, has an avatar that communicates for them that like they, they have something else and they are like putting forward some sort of avatar that is going to communicate with you. That is not their true self. Um, or is not like this other self that they hold on to more closely. Uh, and I think that is like also getting at a certain, um, alienation from work that then like alienates you from parts of yourself as well. Mm. Um, yeah, well, uh, as we said, um, the, uh, the references are, are always incisive. (laughs) Uh, so, um, this, we'll continue to keep that, uh, in mind along with, um, how it operates in, in conjunction with the other, um, the other like kind of signposting that we're getting about, you know, the show, uh, you know, the show's like critiques or concerns around, um, around these ideas. Yeah. Um, a couple like quick things. Um, I want to point out a commonality with Ghost in the Shell. Uh, the show is consistently revealing like how horrific and uh, immense the power of the police is <laughs> uh, in this world. Um, you know, we have the like surveillance regime in the police state um, that uh, very, very much the same as like in Ghost in the Shell, we see all the tools at, and like the tools that they're bring to that they're able to bring to bear uh, to solve these crimes. Um, and it invites reflection on like, you know, the, the asymmetry or like the powerlessness of the, um, you know, the individual, uh, in the face of, of all this, um, of this type of policing. Um, we get that here, especially with like the, um, them identifying Mito, uh, like the complexity of the <laughs> of the profiling and then like the tools that they're able to use to just narrow down uh what seems like an impossible uh an impossible case is um I think it it it's shocking uh and and that um has some significance to it um but also the police work is presented as like paralleling and mirroring the uh the crimes in the uh, of the criminals. <laughs> um, so we're getting these, like, sometimes this is in the form of, um, just juxtaposition where, um, we see like the criminal going about their machinations, uh, and then like the police, uh, you know, doing their own machinations to try to like, uh, you know, ca- catch him. Um, 
in this sense, this is, I, I would say is a standard trope of police shows. Um, yeah. But Psychopaths takes this a little bit further uh, because it's so... I think it culminates this by showing the like um the brutal violence of the criminal and also the police and juxtaposing that as well. Um and it's kind of inviting that the comparison of like um you know, oh the well the police are like engaging in this brutality and how uh different um you just how much of a distinction is there. Um between like the brutality of the criminals and, and the brutality of the police, and then also like the police and, and the criminals themselves. Um, so that's one thing. Um, it's also uh, in episode in episode three, uh, especially um, because the police do uh, Kogami like bullying Yuji um, and like forcing it essentially forcing him to like backing him into a corner and, and making him do like repeat his crime. Uh, yeah. And then to just like, you know, not kill him, <laughs> which we corrected, uh, but to be able to like, you know, brutalize him and, and arrest him and, and um, imprison him. Yeah. Um, I found again, one of the papers that I think has the most detailed description of the play. Do you want me to read this? Yeah. Um, so Sarawa Egeo, farewell to movies. Um, notably, this is uh, shortly before his first film, uh, Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets. Um, but they say uh, Sarawa Egeo represents the perfect link between the concept of performance in this type of experiment and that which Teriyama was later to develop in cinema. This one-act drama examines on a theatrical stage the relationship between spectators and the cinematographic uh, screen. It also explains the author's vision, according to which the stage screen must become one single thing with the public. Of particular interest is the introduction and the concept of uh, Dairinin substitutes, or this would be the, the agents. Uh, Teriyama also uses the English term stand-in. Mm-hmm. Um, i.e. those figures that in everyday life perform an act in place of someone else. Producing clothes, preparing food, and building a house are examples of how uh, everything in human life is entrusted to the diarin. Diarin. Wait. Oh, the substitute, the agent, to, to use the subtitle. For, for psychopaths uh, to the point of realizing that we too, in order to participate in social consent, interpret the substitute of someone else. Uh, as the stage has a large white screen on the backdrop that is used to allow the public to perceive the absence of images. Uh, and by means of many cinematographic references, the two actors begin to think of their lives as a film in which each has a part to play. From this perspective, the white screen on the stage may be viewed as the screen of life, manifested as the stage on which the two people move in a kind of daydream until cinema and theater become one. Not knowing one's own role in this movie is clearly linked to the theme of the loss of identity. I am not me. I am somebody stand-in. Both social and, in this case, sexual. Because uh, of the gay lovers aspect. Uh, Teriyama deconstructs the identity of this 
uh, personages creating a world no longer containing protagonists where everyone is the replacement of someone else. The public asked to interpret a role and to create a personal film from the play can recompose their own identities through imagination. The involvement of the spectator is clarified in the finale when a rugby ball is kicked into the stalls. It is as if there has been a reversal of roles in which the actors on the stage watch what is happening beyond the screen, breaking the fourth wall. Teriyama uses here for the first time a means provokingly a thema- uh, theatrical stage to make the audience actively participate in a film, reflecting on a meta-theatrical way uh, his idea of the other half of the work created by its spectators. So, yeah, that's a lot to, uh, yeah. to unpack, but I think in line with like the, the thoughts that you were, yeah. um, you know, expressing, but um, I figured I, I would actually read out the, the best summary of the play that I had found. So, uh, just to give people a little bit more of a sense of, and not just my own words, trying to, to read various summaries and put together what I think was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so w- with that in mind, <clears throat> um, I'll ask what do you think the significance is of Makashima uh, invoking this, uh, this play uh, in this moment with Mido? Um, <clears throat> Cause I would say so, it's a, it's a rebuke, yeah. right? That's the first thing I would say yeah. is it's like yeah. his final pronouncement of like, I'm rebuking you. Uh, and this is like how you failed. Yeah. Um, and, and also I think in the, like, part of what, what Mito is trying to do is like, be the perfect substitute for the people who he thinks fail to actually live up to the avatar, to the character. Um, and I think this is like a, in some ways, almost a rebuke of like, um, his approach to this idea being specifically around, uh, almost like uh just this fandom space of like um you know uh that that wouldn't be canon or whatever you know that kind of like relationship to to people uh that Mito is taking um and like to these characters that he's like externalizing and the like his whole like selfhood is grounded in like you know, being this agent, like it's, yeah. it's not just like, like become being the agent becomes like the end in and in and of itself. Yes. <laughs> um, rather than like trying to, in some way, break that down, uh, almost leaning into it. Um, and I, I think also some of this is, um, I think for the viewer, specifically like Makishima quoting Terry Yamashuji here is marking him as, um, I think this sort of countercultural intellectual type there, there's just like a, a, a tone here, you know, mm-hmm. um, when someone whips out to Terry Yamashuji, you immediately yeah. know what type of person that is. Yeah. You <laughs> like, this is a thing that marks Makishima as in some way leftist, you know, Mm-hmm. Teriyama Shuji, I think, is, is like a noted leftist um, who's like doing provoking stuff about society and things like that. And so I think some of it is also to put you in this mind space of like um, 
this is this is who Makishima is is somebody who is like uh thinking about these things and um you know maybe wrestling with these like deeper concepts of of uh human society and like you know this this is the play before throw away your books rally in the streets uh a movie yeah. that's like I think its final conclusion is uh, I've said a bunch of stuff in this movie, but like what you need to do is you need to like go out into the streets and actually riot. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You like, you can't end watching this. You can't watch this movie and then leave the, the theater and be like, Oh, well that like taught me so much. That was really, that's not like the purpose of, um, of books and of media and like, like all of this is to like, yeah, all of this is like to to drive you to some sort of action that is going to like create meaningful change in the world that you exist in. Um and that's like the relationship that you should have towards you should not lose yourself. Um and I think this is also then tying into the stuff happening with Mita. You should not lose yourself in the the work, in the, you know, the uh the film or the book or the the VTuber right Mm. you should not lose yourself into that you should notion of like the ideal form that's like yes the character or like you know the entity that's you know represented in in this work um that appears to have this kind of like fixity or like internality uh like going down that whole like rabbit hole yeah that's like not the uh that's really not like the function of the right function of art. Yeah. Um, which I think we're also then going to get a reiteration of next time about mm-hmm. like, what is the function of art and uh, like, what is, what are you actually doing with the art? Um, what is the function that the art has for society? Um, I think some of that's coming in here as well. So for sure, definitely a key concern of the show uh, like artistry and art, uh, comes up uh, a lot and, uh, it will continue to, yeah. um, but also something that Makashima is obviously interested in. Um, yeah. And we'll learn a lot more <laughs> about <laughs> to, to, I mean, of course this is obvious, uh, because we're on episode eight and there's many more episodes. Um, but there's a little bit of like a McGillis dynamic where, we're going to learn a lot more about Makishima <laughs> uh, yeah. and his, and his motivations uh, and like hit the, you know, the nature of, of his character. Um, so, uh, but these are, there's some good ideas uh, that, that have come out. So um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Not not to be this person and just yell about Terry Yamashuji, but I do highly encourage people go to rarefilmm.com and you can I think find both Throw Away Your Books Rally in the Streets um and Pastoral to Die in the Country, two fantastic movies that like I think everyone should watch. Yeah. And and maybe I finally will now. Um Yeah. Now that we got the Shuji reference in Psychopaths, I'm obligated to do it. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a, um, I think it's good that you, that we did a deep dive, um, on the, uh, Shuji reference. 
Um, yeah. And this is something I actually, I thought about in advance where I was like, uh, I don't want to get too like, I don't want there to be too much density of us, like just unpacking the references. Um, because for whatever reason, you know, that doesn't feel like organic or, um, yeah. Varied. Uh, but now that we're actually having the discussion, I'm like, again, the references are these like signposts. Um, yeah. That are really important. Um, and so spending time on them is actually, is going to be very good. Um, for us yeah. to, to orient <laughs> uh, the discussion. And I, and I went into this being like, um, like the the Nietzsche reference of the abyss. We don't really need to explain that. Uh, there is some complexities there, but like there's lots of English writing about Nietzsche. Um, people can find that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I did pop a little bit for Kierkegaard. There's some Kierkegaard that I enjoy. Um I don't think we need to like get into depth with some of that, but I did want to specifically spend some time on this like Teriyama Shuji reference because I think it is, uh, it it is a reference happening here where there's like not a lot of English language stuff around it, right. um, and so I I was able to find what English language stuff I could and piece things together in a way of like I have watched a number of his films, I have like read up basically, you know. I will often try to read up as much as I can about him because I, I find a lot of his work really fascinating. Uh, so this is a, a space where I felt like I could uh, provide a little bit more context, I guess here. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, I doubt this will be the last time that we uh, refer to the ideas that, <laughs> that have just been brought to bear through that. Yeah. Um, I, uh, for my part, I, I want to linger on another reference here that uh, that got me going, and that uh, <laughs> I think I think is good, um, which yeah. is the Russo reference. Um, it so happens that I have a, a little bit of interest uh, and knowledge, interest in and knowledge of Russo, um, that I that has come about in the time between <laughs> my last viewing of the show and now. Um, so this reference registered with me uh, to a much greater degree this time. Um, my like preparatory comment to this is that um, uh, once again, like my thesis, I'm holding myself back from doing any type of like uh, over determining the discussion. Um, but I do want to put my thesis out there that, um, the show is concerned with recognition, specifically like intersubjective recognition, um, and that there's a crisis uh, of intersubjective intersubjective recognition in the world of the show. Um, that is brought about or like enforced, regardless of how we characterize it, deeply related to the civil system and how it. Uh, like reduces uh, or how it like subjectifies uh, all the human beings uh, under its uh, purview. Anyway, so Rousseau. Um, 
this comes up with Masaoka and Akane. Um, Masaoka brings it up and it's in relation to um, this like preceding conversation about um, the internet and like communicating on the internet and how it's really uh, Akane is taking this position of like, Oh, you know, the internet is just another communication tool. Um, it's like any technology. It's not inherently good or bad. Um, we just use it. Uh, we accept that it exists and we use it because that's what humans do. Um, and, you know, this is a, a communication tool like um, any other communication <laughs> tool we've had in the in the past. Uh, and then Masaoka is like, hey, you know what? You're right. Um, and gives her this little quiz and then ties it back to Rousseau. Uh, and what he says is his reading of Rousseau's discourse on inequality <laughs> is that uh, Rousseau is saying that human, now I'm quoting, humans are social by nature. All the communi- communication tools that exist in the world, so letters, language, etc., are there to strengthen uh, social structure. And one thing that's happening with this is that the same time he's saying this, it's juxtaposed with Kogami in the background using language um, instead of technology. Um, so Gino is trying to like trace the IP address uh, and Kogami is analyzing the language uh, of the, these conversations to solve the case. Um, so there's something here that is um, affirming uh Masaoka's interpretation of Rousseau, the way that he's articulating it, in the sense of like affirming this social connection that language offers. Um, so like Kogami doesn't know Spooky Boogie at all, um, but uh, language is such a powerful tool of connection that he can use that alone to like get so close to the truth of who she is that he can detect the flaws uh even in the work of this like master genius master interpret uh, impersonator, um, so he's somehow like, um, it's this uh, level of access to another human being, uh, to their like selfhood, and um, and their like true nature, um, that is like extremely powerful. <laughs> um, so that's the fir- I think the first thing that the show is doing. Um, the second thing, and, uh, what I find to be, uh, actually even more interesting is that there is a great deal that's unsaid (laughs) in this, like, distillation of Rousseau. Um, and I think the unsaid portion is, um is supposed to loom large. Um, it is like, uh, subtly very important. Um, and the fact that it's like, uh, uh, unsaid, um, makes its significance even greater. Uh, and the unsaid part is that, uh, Rousseau's conception of human sociality is like, actually very, uh, comp, like, it's actually very negative <laughs> uh, in, in many ways. Um, and there's a deep tension in it um, where 
I don't think it's truly accurate to say that um, it's highly debatable if Rousseau is actually saying that humans are social by nature. Um, it's more the case that like humans find themselves in social dynamics. Uh, and there's a teleological element as well. Like we just live in societies, <laughs> right? So this is like the reality yeah. of, of human life um, is that we're living in these societies. Um, but that like social interaction uh, like brings with it uh, a number of like deep tensions um, that are very like difficult to resolve. Um, so like conflicts between um, uh, like human beings uh, centered around like the need for uh, freedom and like selfhood. Um, and uh, I'll wrap this up by, uh, by going to a concept of Rousseau's, uh, the concept of am- amor propria, um, which is like a form um a form of like self-love um but for rousseau uh this is like a uh when humans exist together in a social dynamic um there's a uh, competitive element where uh humans are all seeking uh recognition from one another uh in order to you know ground their identity uh or like affirm themselves um because just ver- the exi- uh, the knowledge of other human beings and being around them um, makes your own selfhood uh, in a way contingent <laughs> on recognition from other from others, um, and so uh, that recognition, um, if it's not uh, the question of how to achieve it, uh, becomes a big problem. Um, and in many cases, this can lead to like, uh, to violence, um, where if the like social structure, uh, is not set up (laughs) to like support a like healthy system for, uh, for mediating all of these needs and for assuring recognition, um, it is so important, like to the, it becomes so important to the individual sense of identity, um, that they will like attempt to extract it, uh, through violence. Um, so I guess, you know, the summary statement here is that the need for recognition, uh, can become violent, (laughs) uh, if it's not met. Um, and, uh, this is a, a major concern, um, in, in this text, uh, all of this is totally submerged (laughs) in Masaoka's, uh, like quick, uh, you know, reading of Rousseau here. Um, but I think, uh, and I, I very rarely use this word, um, but I think the, like, sub, the submersion of this is intentional. Um, because, like, this is actually the aspect, uh, like, Rousseau is very relevant here, um, but the aspect that is, like, most relevant uh, and most related to the deep problems of this world uh, is unrecognized as of, as of right now. Um, And the fact that it's unrecognized is like something that is uh, like important for the viewer to like understand (laughs) uh, and notice. 
Um, so yeah, with that, I know we just spent 30 minutes <laughs> unpacking these references. Uh, but I think they're, um, I think they're really key. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, perhaps we can move on if you're ready. Yeah. To the, the next group of episodes. Yeah. So episode six is titled return to the lunatic prince of the, I didn't remember this title. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, I didn't really either. I was just, I got it from yeah. the, the wiki when I was doing the synopses. Episode um, seven is one I didn't remember at all. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so episode six, uh, Kugami begins to theorize that a mastermind might have influenced the murderous actions of two recent suspects by essentially providing them with the ability and motivation to carry out their deadly desires. Um, I think this might be where we get the, the interviewing, um, the, the guy who hacked the robots about the, the like thing, the chip that they found. Um, yeah. And then this also includes, um. Uh, Mito from before as well, having like weird access. Um, and then he's also seeing similarities between these cases and the earlier unsolved case that got him demoted to enforcer, uh, which also resulted in the grotesque death of his enforcer, Mitsuru Sasayama. Um, namely the, the, the big similarity here being, uh, so these were these sort of, uh, grotesque, Murders that then involved uh, dismembering the bodies and plasticizing them with a chemical. Um, and uh, basically the murders ended when the, the believed murderer, I think, like died or went missing or something. He went exactly missing. what happened to him. Yeah, went missing. Um, but uh, one of the, the questions there was uh, he was basically just like a high school science teacher. So where was he getting access to these chemicals um, that were like highly specialized chemicals? Uh, somebody must have been providing it. And uh, so even if it was just him, there's like some sort of accomplice happening. Um, and so the similarity that he's seeing, especially here, is uh, there is some intermediary who is connecting people who who have these like uh deadly desires with people who have the means to supply them with the things that they need to do that basically if he thinks that's a similarity just wait yeah (laughs) just Um, wait for uh for the end of episode (laughs) six and uh everything going forward uh so meanwhile uh akane tsunamori uh, seeks out more information on Kogami from Shusei uh, Kagari and Shion Karunomori, um, and is basically learning about uh, Sasayama, uh, the cold case, uh, you know, specimen case. This is where we get, uh, I think, also the great little conversation I brought up earlier with the, like, instant ramen and stuff. Um, but anyway... Uh, then, uh, sort of towards the end of the episode, um, at Oso Academy, an all-female boarding school, Rikako Oryu, an enigma- uh, the enigmatic president of the art club, murders an unsuspecting fellow classmate and mutilates her corpse into a work of art under the tutelage of the evident mastermind, Shogo uh, Makishima. Um, also, as a note here. Uh, we didn't bring this up with episode. The, there's like a cold open, I think, episode one before you even get like any sort of OP. 
Um, yes, there that is. is <laughs> and we yeah, that, that is Kagami and Makishima like meeting on some stairs, basically, and it being like this moment of some sort of like uh, recognition. Cowboy and Bebop then, final battle. Yeah, yeah. Um, presumably, is going to be something from the end, or it was maybe this chance encounter, and he hasn't put everything together yet. I don't know. Um, you know, me, the, the way that it's positioned right now, I assume that it's like, uh, everything that has like towards the end of the series, Uh, you know, we open on that, but it could also be, this happened like when Kogami was, uh, uh, an, an inspector and like maybe had this moment where he didn't realize at that moment that this is the person he was looking for but had some sort of recognition and then you know uh but as the the killer got away or whatever we know who makashima is now at this point yes yeah very we've seen like blurry photos of him things like that so um and we now see him here so um we'll see more of him in episode seven (laughs) Um, the language of the Chinese orchid, uh, which this title, I completely, I didn't even register it at all. Uh, when, when I was watching the episode, um, but anyway, um, after realizing that Kogami's suspicions were correct and the recent murders and the specimen case are indeed connected, um, it only took the exact same, uh, murder MO to, uh, occur again. Um, to make it really obvious, but, uh, Gino is finally like, ah, Kogami's right. Um, so of course he takes Kogami off the case, uh, because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want Kogami too to close be- to it. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want Kogami to become a loose cannon. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're a loose cannon, Kogami. <laughs> this is not the vibe of the show, but, um, it's sort of what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Gino's thinking about it. Um, yeah. So uh, he takes Kogami off the case and tells Akane, like, your job now is to make sure Kogami doesn't become a loose cannon. Um, uh, I'm pairing you up with the new one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's got a good head on her shoulders. She's going <laughs> to rein you in. Rookie, wa- watch Kogami. Yeah. Make sure he doesn't get too hot. <laughs> um, so anyway... Uh, of course, Akane just like fuels the fire um, by dr- delving deeply into the like the specimen case, um, and uh, you know the whole history of it uh, with Kogami. Um, so she just asks him about it straight up, um, and uh, in addition to uh, talking about his relationship with Sasayama. Um, and then his, um, you know, his experience of, of the events of the case. Uh, he also shows her his one piece of evidence that he retrieved from Sasayama's computer uh, after Sasayama was killed. And it's a blurry image of Makashima, uh, who we recognize as Makashima because uh, we've seen Makashima um, already. And we're about to see him again uh, because the next scene is a scene uh, with Makashima and a guy who we don't know yet, um, but who is named Toyohisa Senguji, uh, in his, uh, Senguji's fancy, like, study. 
Um, in this conversation, uh, they're talking about uh, Roichi Oryo, who is the father of uh, Rikaka Oryo, um, the the murderer du jour. Um, we learn that uh, Roichi Oryo, uh, the father, uh, was a famous artist, um, and that he was known for uh, an art style that was extremely graphic, um, predominantly depicting um, like mutilated uh, bodies of young women, um, and that uh, he was also known for um, being like an extremely moral person, uh, and that the, you know the ideology of his art um, was all about uh, you know holding up this mirror of cruelty to society. Um, to make people aware of uh, the cruelty that exists so that, um, you know, with that awareness, they would then, um, you know, uh, manage their own, uh, you know, violent urges, uh, manage their own inclinations towards cruelty uh, to, to mitigate them um, and, you know, therefore promote like uh, an orderly and a, a peaceful, compassionate society. Um, what's hap uh, what's happening to Roichi now is that he's, uh, nearly catatonic, um, due to an epi uh, epidemic of what we learn is called eustress deficiency. Um, Makashima and Sanguji also talk about this at length. Um, and, uh, basically the idea behind this, uh, disease, uh, is that, um, with the advent of the Sybil system, um, and this kind of, uh, like, <laughs> well, to use a, a term that has been used later in the Psychopaths franchise, uh, mandatory happiness, um, and like this, you know, coercive, uh, enforced mental health, um, that people have become so placated, um, and, uh, uh, so like, um, unused to any type of tension or struggle, um, that there's a, an atrophy, like a mental and physical atrophy, um, that occurs, um, that re eventually renders people catatonic. Um, and that this is an epidemic, uh, that is causing uh, a lot of deaths, um, throughout society, but is like, um, also being like, uh, concealed or swept under the rug, um, by, you know, the, the powers that be anyway. Um, later, uh, Oreo's daughter, uh, Rikako, um, continues her crimes with the help of Makashi uh, Makashima's colleague, uh, Gusung Choi, and abducts Kagami, uh, Kawarazaki, who is worried about Yoshika Okubo's disappearance. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, the girl that she has killed, um, she is then like targeting the friends of that girl, um, as she gains like opportunities to, um, uh, I think specifically in this instance, like Kagami is asking about her friend. Um, and then she like, uh, Rikako uses that, um, uh, moment to like drug her and, and kidnap her. Um, and then episode eight and then silence, uh, through complex profiling and with the assistance of an imprisoned criminal he knows, uh, who has like full body tattoos to look like a 
skeleton and muscles and stuff. Um, Kogami determines that the girl's school killer isn't the same murderer from the specimen case because the recent murderers lack the originality and pointed social commentary of the previous killings. Um, Basically, like the the previous murderer, like would choose a location that would be some some somehow, uh, you know, meaningfully ironic. Um, there were details that were not like necessarily aesthetic details, but that might still convey some sort of meaning. Like I forget, it's like the hippocampus or something <laughs> that was like removed and put in the anus or something. Yeah, of um, the politician who like dodged. Uh, dodged like a prosecution by you know pretending that he didn't remember like what he had done yeah um and so you know and that's a thing that is not going to be like aesthetically seen by somebody discovering the corpse but that would carry some sort of meaning still in the investigation of like what was done to the body um but in this case it's like uh, purely this uh aesthetic object and it is uh the locations are chosen purely to be a spot where lots of people will see it um so uh this is the the lack of creativity uh basically or originality um so when uh akane and he realized the culprit is one of the students uh and specifically uh the the like guy who's in prison, the criminal who's in prison that he knows, uh, is familiar with like lots of, uh, you know, grotesque art or whatever, and immediately identifies, oh, this is the work of, you know, Roichi Oryu, and they're like, oh, that that surname is familiar, and they like look in the computer and they realize that uh, she's his daughter. So, uh, they locate her, um, and basically go to confront her, uh, but she escapes when one of the teachers, uh, stops Kogami from executing her being like, you, you can't be Akira body horror exploding, uh, students at my school. Uh, we're trying to maintain the purity of women here. <laughs> yeah. We're, these are all very sheltered women. Like that's the yeah. whole purpose of this school. Yeah. It's like specifically to create this thing that is, uh, outside of dominant, um, you know, the, the current social order is not, like, creating this kind of ideal, traditional, like, sheltered woman who will be a good wife and mother. And the school exists to, like, create that as, like, a name brand product of, like, this girl went through the school. And now you can, like, have – this is uh, what um, Rikako is, like, talking about and, like, what she's objecting to uh, in her art, supposedly. Um, but anyway, uh, so she flees, uh, Kogami is unable to execute her there in the middle of the school, uh, and the enforcers try to locate her, um, are kind of aware that there must be some sort of secret routes. This is a thing that's brought up earlier, but like these really old buildings, uh, and all the renovations, so like blueprints get really shoddy and aren't covering everything. And there's like little spots that are missing. So that's where she's been like doing her murder, uh, and like plastization and art stuff is like a hidden room. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they end up, uh, finding one of the hiding spaces, um, and discover her latest work, which are the two more murdered classmates. Um, and, uh, 
she's sort of fleeing from the, the scene here. Um, and as she arrives to the destination Makishima had prepared for her, uh, Makishima calls, tells her that she's a disappointment. Uh, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> and then has, uh, there's like a, a robot dog that's like stalking her and cuts her hand off or something. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Senguji shoots her. Um, and they basically like dump her body in some water. Um, meanwhile, Kagami picks up a damaged audio file, uh, which the plot, yeah, the synopsis that I got says deliberately left by Makashima, but that's not clear in any way. Yeah. So basically like they become aware that there was all this footage and once they started like really cracking down and showed up and stuff. A bunch of stuff got damaged and Kogami is like quickly racing to see if he can find anything and finds this damaged audio file. Um, which the, the implication to me in the moment was like, this could be, uh, the trash is still deleting out and you recovered a little bit of damage in that process. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's actively clearing out, but Makashima's intentions here are at least unknown. Uh, but this allows him to confirm Makishima's existence and involvement in the case. Um, and then using surveillance footage from the school, uh, Makishima is watching Kogami pro and is like profiling process and is interested in him. Is like, Hmm, that guy, this is my uh, new fixation. Yeah. This is my new fixation. Uh, <laughs> uh, my, my two henchmen. Um, we also get a little moment in here where I think it's uh, Oryu who says to um, Senguji, basically, like, you know, he'll get bored of you eventually as well. Um, so uh, whether or not that will happen will remain to be seen. But uh, it's been suggested that he might become disappointed in Senguji already. So maybe that's the first death flag. <laughs> hmm. we, we will see. Sanguchi yeah. doesn't seem to think so. Yeah. He's like, no, 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 I'm not the guy who gets killed. That that definitely <laughs> is not contributing to, to potential death flagging. No, not, not at all. Um, there is a moment where just like ending here and being like, all right, I gotta, I gotta wait. Like I gotta record. I gotta wait to watch some more for the next time we record. Uh, I'm just like, it wasn't he like working at the school? <laughs> I feel like they've like they've like got some stuff to to link him now. I mean, I'm sure he has his ways out, but yeah, no comment. Yeah, <laughs> it was at least implied that he worked at the school because there's a part where they like they come into like the the teacher's office or whatever. Yeah, and and they know him as He's like there. the vice principal knows him as a teacher for with like yeah. a different name. Yeah. Uh. So for sure, like he. Yeah, he he's been working at this school for some length of time that is unclear. Yeah. Um, I guess I didn't catch in the moment that it was necessarily a different name and not Makishima. Because uh, also I was still kind of learning character names. Um, so yeah, maybe he did have a fake name that will help cover this up a little bit more. But there's a moment where I was like, if they look at like the teacher, like, <laughs> you know... The list the of red, teachers yeah, here, the and there's Makishima. Like, I feel like, yeah, there's <laughs> there's a certain amount that the jig is up. I'm assuming the jig's not already up. I'm assuming this is going to go on longer. You don't have to comment on any of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, maybe uh, just three who, more episodes. He's to get gots, and there's a there's a new one. <laughs> yeah, who? Yeah, it's Makishima. It's disappointing somebody, and 
gets killed. Um, yeah, who knows? Maybe, um, maybe this will make more sense at some point. Yeah. Um, uh, we get more, we get more references here. I'll say the big one is there's multiple, uh, Shakespeare references. Yeah. Um, and that, I, I think I kind of want to bring that in towards the end of the episode eight discussion. Yeah. Um, so I guess first thing I'll say, um, it appears to me, uh, that there is a, um, a pattern being set up, um, with the, um, the criminals that, that we get, uh, in the first eight episodes, um, with each one, like telling us, uh, something more. Uh, about the world and um kind of like unfolding a uh you know a greater picture of um you know the the society itself um my first like you know high level ideas about this um you know the first uh the first killer is okura um who you know his motivation or like what sets him off uh is that he's flagged as a latent criminal um and so he knows that like he's going to lose you know he's going to lose his rights um and potentially like his freedom and be well not potentially he will lose his rights and freedom <laughs> um and has now like been marked um, in this way, uh, and that seems to be like the thing that sets him off, and that's kind kind of like what his crime is about. Um, second is uh, Yuji, who um, his circumstances seem uh, similar to me, in that he's also like marked uh, for criminality. Um, through like a slightly different mechanism. Um, but we have like a social structure, um, that it is like operating to mark him, um, and position him, um, as, uh, a criminal. Um, yeah. Does that seem reasonable? <laughs> Uh, reasonable yeah. reading so far. Yeah. Uh, and that, like, you know, the crime that he's doing, that both of these guys are doing, it seems to be following um, this, like, coercive uh, or this, like, violent, um, you know, um, positioning uh, that they're subjected to, uh, that they're, like, marked as criminals and then therefore, you know, um, they become desperate and then they, they do these criminal acts cause they're like backed into a corner or whatever. Yeah. Um, then we get Mito, uh, who is, uh, you know, again, with the, with the Teriyama stuff and the discussion of his death scene, um, we've already elucidated a lot of this. Um, but his motivation seemed to me to, to be, uh, quite a bit different. Um, 
in that he's like obsessed with the avatars <laughs> as these like ideal forms. Um, and in order to like preserve them, um, he, he wants to kill the creators because he can like embody, uh, like, you know, give life to these, uh, these avatars, um, in their true form and, and, uh, make certain that they remain like in this form. Um, yeah. And what stands out to me about this is the fact that it's like, he has, uh, his crime is based on like an idea or like a conviction. Um, so, you know, he has like this fixation on the platonic ideal or whatever. Um, and that, you know, this is an instance where a kind of like deviant uh, scare quotes, uh, like a deviant idea, um, becomes like the source of crime, um, or the motivation. Uh, and then we have it with, uh, Rikako as well, who I, I think is similar, um, in that her crimes are driven by, uh, ideas or ideals, um, which are to me, it seemed twofold. Um, the first being, uh, like her father's condition, um, that she resents the like civil system and society, uh, for, uh, for her father's condition. Uh, and then second, like she resents the, um, ideology of the school and is trying to like, um, you know, assail that, uh, through yeah. her, like her art. And, and there's also a way in which, uh, her father's condition, um, like her reflecting on that. And then his art has also come to this conclusion that like, uh, part of the issue was that like, his philosophy with his art was fundamentally correct, but he was not willing to take it far enough uh, that he stopped at the, the image of rather than the, like uh, actually going to the, the, like uh, the depths of human cruelty and that like you, you need to like actually get into that rather than like a peer representation of it. Mm -hmm. Like embody it or affect yeah. it or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I guess the the big point is like you know there, there's this uh, evolution of the conception of crime or the like the um, instances of like type of criminal we get um, where the crime is like um, seems to be becoming about like ideas or ideals um, and. Uh, that's all, like, I think that's all I need to say <laughs> on that subject for now. Uh, but I, I did want to, uh, you know, highlight that I think the show is doing something with, with that patterning. Yeah. Also, I think, um, like, related to that, especially between those first two, I, I think there's also a, a thing that happens when you get, um, you know, the second killer, uh, UG, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, where compared to the, the first one, uh, I think it's very easy to read the civil system as working, uh, even if there is a certain amount of this guy being pushed into a corner by it, the civil system correctly identifying 
that like like I have less sympathy for him even as I do still have some around like the issues of the society um less sympathy for for UG I have less sympathy for the first guy oh the first guy okay yep um be because also because the way that he is lashing out is in no way uh like he's lashing out against like a uh innocent woman rather than in any way like anything that has to do with the actual systems. Um, whereas Yuji is one, there's like a more complex mechanism by which he is being pushed from there. There's again, there's a way that I think the civil system could be correctly reading that like, this is a man uh, who has like intentions to rape and is going to rape. And you could very easily read what happens there as a success of that system. And the part where it fails is the part where it then shoots, says shoot the, the rape survivor mm-hmm. uh, and kill her as well. <laughs> right. Um, and that is meant to like call all of what was happening there into question to some extent. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but there is still like, I think less sympathy there for that first killer whose name completely eludes me. Oh, correct. Whereas with Yuji, there, there's like a far clearer, like, um, like the, the real per like people who should probably be dealt with to like fix this situation is just like very directly the, the bosses of this company and the stuff that they are doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the deliberate, like, you know, engineering of this, these dynamics. Yeah. And like sacrificing of people into a, a system to make it more efficient, um, and so there's more sympathy for him, uh, and so I think that's also an important part of the step is like moving it away from uh, from like more just like this is uh, I don't know, like moving away from like more easily to to prescribe as the viewer as like this is like. Uh, immoral behavior or this is like uh actual criminal behavior and then like this is going too far but like addressing some actual issue and then getting into the idea stuff so uh, yeah. i wanted to like break down the because i think there is a a significant thing happening there Agreed. Um, between the first two so regarding okura um i think this is a, a very interesting case because i agree with what you said yeah. Um, however, there is something about uh, there's something that's being like indicated. I feel like with uh, like about the power of the civil system and what it means for uh, like individuals uh, in this world when. Okura is like when we get the the sequence of events of like the civil system marking him as a criminal and then him being like oh like that just means I'm a criminal now (laughs) yeah like there's a unilateral uh like uh identification that's happening where the system itself is like foisting (laughs) uh this like identity or this classification onto Okura that he then, you know, uh, yeah, he then like becomes that. Um, but what is, what his, what is truly his agency? (laughs) 
yeah. in that. And I think it's debatable. Um, yeah. But like but him yeah, being the I, first is him being the first yeah. case. And this case raising that exact question is like, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's the first case and it does that right away. Yeah. Um, but then also that it, it does it in the, the situation where, um, it is still the easiest for the viewer to see the identification of him as a criminal, as a success and the identification of the victim as a criminal, as like the outlier that needs to be corrected. Um, because it's then going to continue to complicate that, but I think it needs to start with like that level of questioning what's happening, uh, in order to keep moving from that. For sure. Uh, um, yeah. And the, the and juxtaposition, again, I, I'm saying that's not saying that I think that the identification of Okura as a criminal is a success of the civil system. Um, but that. I think it is far easier to, to read it that way. And that within the society, that's also probably how a lot of these cases go. You know, there's a certain amount to which like, this is why even as the show is giving you reasons to question this, most people do not question this because sure. it, there, there is the easy reading of this is a success. It did just uh, correctly identify that he would do these things. Um, yeah. And, so. and you're, you're right to raise that, <laughs> to raise that. Um, yeah. Especially because like, um, you know, I'm becoming There's still something happening in like the identity of a person to, even when they, they get labeled that you are a latent criminal, that means that you are a criminal then says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and rape a woman that I'm going to like do this. Th I think there is still something happening there. Uh, that is suggesting that, that does provide the space to say that maybe the latent criminal rating is correct. If someone would be so ready to embrace that identity and to go out and, and like do this. Um, but again, it wants you to question that, but I think it also wants to provide it where like, you know, I think there are a lot of people who could be, even if it is in a system where they believe in it, labeled that. And what that means is they go out and they steal things and not like go to this extent. So, right. um, yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I'm becoming aware, um, in, in that point that <laughs> I've approached this, the whole, like our whole discussion, um, with like the interpretation that I've been advancing has immediately discarded, uh, the argument that could be made of like, oh, well, the civil system is just like, correct. Yeah. Um, now, or that there are outliers that we need to fix, right. but that fundamentally the system is correct. Yeah. Uh, and it's more about fine tuning or it's more about providing more space. It, it is about, uh, correcting it where it does not identify the victim as the criminal rather than the entire idea itself you know, right. there's, there's kinks that need to be worked out of it. Basically. Yes. It needs to yeah. be improved. Yeah. Um, but that fundamentally it's still a good idea. Yes. And I want to like, you're right to make space for that. Um, because 
that's absolutely uh, an interpretation that could be made. Um, yeah. And without saying more, uh, that interpretation, like, uh, it won't go away. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but I, uh, I think it's also being specifically foregrounded in its most, like, you can just do that easily at the beginning to help, help ground you also to some extent in this world, because having it where the system feel going from the beginning where the system just feels like broken entirely, you, you want to balance it. And I think it is balancing that where, uh, you, you can kind of like people can lean different directions on is the whole thing broken is the whole thing corrupt from the start. The idea itself is the problem, uh, to, Oh, this is fine. It just needs some things worked out and you know the system is working because you put people like akane in the room and uh they're then able to make the decision when the civil system doesn't to to course correct and stuff like all that That, is in there and i yeah yeah, that is very much at stake um yeah i think that uh it so happens that um i have a strong reading or a, a, a a deeply felt uh interpretation of this series um that like you know that that obviously argues against that point um yeah but i'm glad that you that you stopped us so we could raise that um because my tendency is going to be so much to just like rush headlong (laughs) into like yeah what i what i think is happening um, yeah, my tendency is also not to say, well, yes, the the opaque and bizarre civil system uh, <laughs> is just correct about how we should just shoot and kill people uh, without any sort of like judicial system or uh, other means of trying to, to rehabilitate people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I myself personally uh, think that like you know, other forms of, of justice that don't involve uh, the execution in the street of criminals or potential criminals <laughs> is probably better. Yeah. And aside, but, <laughs> even aside from like our personal moral yeah. uh, and, you know, philosophical convictions, which I will say this show has a way, at least for me of like really, um, really uh, inflame is the wrong word. Uh, but it makes me very passionate <laughs> about like yeah. about some of the issues that are at stake. Um, and so, uh, and I think that's a, an amazing, uh, testament to the show. Um, yeah. And, and how, like how powerful a piece of, uh, uh, art like this is. Um, but I appreciate, uh, slowing us down to like, so we can be more even handed here and not just rush headlong and overdetermine the, the discussion. Um, because all of the points that you raised, uh, I, I, again, I will tell you, uh, the, the show is staging that as, as a major stakes. Um, and I think it's, again, I have a, uh, I have a, a very like, uh, strong interpretation of what I think the show is doing with (laughs) that staging. Um, but We'll just have to see if that, uh, you know, how we feel as we go. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think this also extends where, uh, 
even as it's complicating it, there's also still room for people to be like, well, fundamentally, a thing that does read people's mental states and will flag if they need like therapy is probably a good thing. Um, yeah, and you could go like, more so than the gun that tells you to shoot somebody because they're a criminal. I'm more inclined to say maybe there is some form of that that could be good, but also, uh, I'm not I'm not full throated in that defense. I'm more on the side of that's probably a bad idea. There, there's so yeah. much room for abuse. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's illuminating to like follow some of these threads of like what interpretations that could be made, such as yeah. to fo- uh, to follow from the one that you just brought up. Um let's say it would be good if we had a system that could just read everybody's mental state and like fly. And we we that exist they in a utopian society where uh, all of our leaders have people's best interests in heart. Um, and like this system is being like the, when people are flagged, they're specifically being given into like very good, healthy, productive forms of therapy. And right. Let's yeah. Yeah. Like we're going to fully just like, do the like best version, you know, without like critical commentary, uh, like interspersed, but just to yeah. construct it, like the most utopian version of the system that we can imagine. Exactly. It would be good if there was a system that could measure everybody's mental state and then like flag them for the ther- necessary, the therapy that they obviously need. Uh, and wouldn't that be such a great solution to, for example, mass shootings? In, like, our current society. Like, if we just knew who was, like, a latent criminal, who was, like, on the verge of doing, you know, these, like, violent acts or mass shootings, well, we could just get them the help they need. And we could just stop. We could just stop them, right? That would be the perfect system (laughs) to to address this this issue. Um, And... uh, I'll, I'll let that stand as like, I think we've made our personal positions clear. Um, but I'll let that like construction stand as like, Hey, yeah, this is a possible, um, like argument that could be made. Um, that like, Oh no, this system actually like such a system, um, would actually be like, you know, a, a net positive for society, whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean that like there are experiments in Chicago right now with, uh, it, when you are like dialing nine one one, you can be put up. I think there's also like a separate hotline or something, but it's part of the experiment to this, but like having mental health professionals who will show up rather than police to deal with certain calls. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a generally good thing. I think that police officers sh- should not be the ones going in to deal with these mental health things. There are, there are so many speaking as someone who used to work at a coffee shop. Uh, there are so many situations that you get put in that feel dangerous to you as a, a like barista um, because there are people who need actual support systems from society and are not getting them. And you are basically their best support system. And your job is to sell people coffee. <laughs> yeah, um, and you have none of the you, like, you're not structure. For it. Yeah. 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 None of the supports 
<laughs> uh, and, you know, structure necessary to actually render that aid in a meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, and so it's easy to then say, wouldn't it be great if there was a society that was based around providing aid to people who needed it? Yeah. Um, um, I, I will say, um, even in the utopian uh, construction of this, um, it still invites deeper questions <laughs> about um, subjectification and uh, like freedom and identity um, that are very difficult to resolve, even on the best. Uh, the most generous uh, interpretation of this um, or uh, uh, imagining of, of such a system. Um, and uh, the show, you know, makes us acutely aware of that um, with, uh, you know, the, the sequence uh, in episode one of, uh, you know, we, we've talked about Okura at length, um, but then the, um, the fact that we immediately after get Shimazu, um, and we get the dialogue of Okura being like, look, you're just like me now. Like the same thing has happened to you. Um, and then she like almost, uh, you know, commits this crime and like kills Kagami. Um, obviously cause she's like terrified and, uh, there's like a self-defense component. Um, yeah, but, uh, and also potentially a suicidal component. Yeah, that as well. Yeah. Um, but the like agency of, uh, an individual who has been like, uh, whose identity, uh, and like their very selfhood, um, which of course is is defined uh, in relation to to society. Um, if their selfhood is reduced um, uh, in this kind of unilateral fashion, um, you still have the question of you know what what truly is their agency. Um, there's like some some deep uh, deep problems there, um, even as we can say like you know. Um, from in practical terms, if I woke up tomorrow and someone and I got there was a warrant for my arrest for some reason that was out of my control, uh, I can tell you very, uh, very firmly that I would not, uh, you know, turn around and do what Okura is doing. Um, and I think, uh, you know, many, uh, most people, uh, would not react that way. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's that like practical, uh, knowledge, um, as well to, to contend with. Yeah. Um, anyway, do we want to talk about, uh, the, the serial killer art <laughs> sculpture yeah. stuff? Yeah. Uh, um, what are your, what are your thoughts? I, I did get to, and I think it's like, uh, I guess it's the end of episode six, right? Where where she shows up? Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, but even before then, like with the stuff that was happening um, with Mito, I was already kind of thinking about art. So seeing this come up, I was like, oh, okay, this is like a theme. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Because before it was more specifically like outside of that range, but the the Teriyama Shuji quote was doing some work for me uh, that I then saw this and I was like, okay, I feel, <laughs> I feel like I was on the right track uh, being excited about that. So, um, yeah, I don't know if you have any specific things that you want to jump off, you know, get this, get the, it started here. Um, where, where do I start? Um, I think there's part of the way art is figuring in psychopaths. Uh, and this is like indicated um, in the dialogue of the episodes. Um, but there's a notion of art um, as a medium by which a society uh, is reflecting on itself. Um, and, and then like trying to, uh, use that reflection to, um, make conscious, um, aspects of like the reality that, uh, that, that community or that society is inhabiting or the behaviors or the nature of, of the society. Um, and this like idea of art, um, which, you know, is, is a, I think a fairly common, um, commonly evoked, uh, like I, idea, uh, is, is definitely at work, uh, in, in psychopaths. Um, I think the other dimension, which, um, relates it fits in more nicely to to a more developed readings that we of these of the themes of the show that we may be able to do later um i think another function though of art is a um, a function of recognition and um in relation to that uh empathy Um, so I think there's, there's two major dimensions of it that, that are operative. Um, and that's where I would start the, the conversation. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a big thing I want to do in here. Um, yeah, I mean the whole thing with Ruichi and his painting um, it's, re- it's really elucidating the, the first dimension of, yeah. um, that I set up there. Um, and I think the show is, is good about ar- articulating that, um, uh, a- a pretty clearly, um, you know, in, in these episodes, uh, one thing that we could set up is, uh, the idea of Ricci's art uh, versus Rikoko's. Um, 
and if there's some substantive difference there. Um, I think there's indications that, that there is. Yeah. Um, if, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll pause there if you want to, uh, if you want to chime in on that. Um, I think, I think one thing that, like, my reaction after seeing the episodes that I w- was thinking about, um, and I also wasn't entirely clear on with one detail, but that, like, you know, the first two pieces, uh, I believe, from her are, like, derivative of very specifically her having this idea of extending, like, his work to the level that she felt it should be at, but that it is still derivative in that. That he is abandoned a, his, like, his artistic ideology and that she's, like, resuming yeah. it or redeeming it. But there's, like, a very derivative thing there uh, where it is a, a duplication of his works, but uh, making them you know, pushing them further to make them like real bodies instead of images of, of dead bodies. Um, but like there, there is that tension between like derivative and then like, uh, extending or pushing further that's happening there. Uh, the one part that I was unclear on is, so then there's that piece that she's working on where she's like sort of moved by, uh, the one friend's concern for other friend who she's already killed. Um, and seems to be in this moment struck with some sort of inspiration around that. And I, I think that that like final piece that they find in the basement, I believe that's supposed to be like more, a more original piece in that, like it is not just a thing that he, we don't in the way that we see the images of the other ones. I don't think we see that one as like a, a you know, painting or whatever. Like an analog painting. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so it seems like she's taking this additional step. Um, but then also, interestingly, this becomes the moment that, like, Makishima is disappointed in her. Some of it is that she's been found, probably. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, like, reasons around why she's been found. But um, I do think it's interesting it's still at this moment that it seems like she is coming into, like, moving out of uh, replicating her father's work um, in her own medium to, to just put it into fully artistic <laughs> perspective and to ignore the, the dead body part <laughs> the dead for people. a moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, has this moment where she then is like beating to create her own work within that medium. Um, but it, it still being this, uh, it, it almost still being focused on like her own, it seems like she has like hangups around uh, women and and gender and sexuality uh, that it is sort of being captured in that as well. So, yeah. Um, I yeah I agree. Um, I think even though even as Kogami is like, you know. Oh, she's like derivative. She's not original. Um, I think there are. Well, th- this is my reading. Um, I think there is actually a substantive difference 
uh, between Ruichi and Rikoko's art. Um, and I think Makashima <laughs> is actually the one who brings it out. Um, yeah. And that's fitting because he's the one who seems to be uh, who offers the explanation um, of Ruichi, of Ruichi's ideology. Um, and just for the sake of having these two together, um, I'll recapitulate um, Makashima's interpretation of Ruichi, which is that um, he's, you know, confronting people with uh, this like brutality and cruelty uh, to heighten their empathy and to make them like guard uh, aware of their, their own cruelty and the possibilities for human cruelty um, so that they won't commit it. <laughs> um, and that they will then like, you know, lead this moral life um, and, you know, like have empathy and care for others, etc. Um But that like his artistic imperative, uh, you know, went away when uh, the civil system is just going to enforce this. <laughs> um, yeah. Just to, like now we'll just enforce this um, in like, you know, a coercive way, uh, but essentially ensuring that, that this will be done um, quote unquote, you know, um, debatable if that's what it's actually doing. Uh, but so then he gave up. Um, whereas, Rococo, um, her art, at least as Makashima seems to understand it, um, is like about inflicting the cruelty. Um, and for me, this comes out, I noticed this with, um, Titus Andronicus becomes the crux, um, because Rococo, uh, seems to enjoy she's obsessed with Titus Andronicus and she says yeah and by way of explaining why uh she says that she enjoys like the cruelty of it um that she seems to like revel in that and get uh pleasure from it um and that is you know uh, deeply meaningful for her um we also see her this is borne out in her interaction with Yoshika, um, which is probably one of the cruelest um, interactions that we get in these eight episodes. And that's saying a lot. Yeah. Um, Where she's like dangling out empathy and connection as bait to lure this like girl to her. Um, And then like drawing out her, like this abuse that she suffered at the hands of her stepfather and like evidently like relishing it um, in this like sadistic way um, once she's drawing it out and then like inflicting, you know, this violence and on you, she like killing her, uh, brutalizing her corpse, etc. Um, later on at the end of the episode, Makashima and, uh, uh, Rikoko talk about Titus Andronicus and Makashima is in, in relation to her, her art. And Makashima is like, 
yeah, you know, when you're confronted with the knowledge that like of death and like human ephemerality, that everything that's beautiful will eventually like wither and pass away. It's natural to want to like preserve that beautiful thing forever um, to preserve that beautiful like person or whatever uh, forever at like the height of their beauty, um, which entails like objectifying them. But then he, uh, I don't remember the exact quote um, from Titus Andronicus, but then he pivots and he's like, but if you truly loved someone, would that actually be what you want? Uh, And, or like, could you say, you know, yes, like kill them to preserve their beauty. Um, And Rikoko like gives this, uh, response of like this like sneering response or sorry not Rikoko Rikako um of like well yeah like I (laughs) I hope I can because I have a lot more artworks to make um like I like I you know I have a lot more people to kill um seemingly missing the entire point uh of Makashima what he uh, Makashima is making um, about like, okay, well, there's something deeper, like, uh, there's a, hu- like a humane and empathetic, uh, concern that is like, maybe should take precedence, <laughs> um, in like, you know, in these reflections about like, you know, death and so on. Um, and, uh, then at a certain point, um, he makes the comment, and now this is in relation to, uh, when she's like expounding on, you know, oh, well, this society is like, um, objectifying women, like the school is objectifying women, uh, turning us into these products, uh, imposing this ideology, um, and that like my art is a kind of like revenge against this, um, and Makashima makes this like side comment of like, oh, I hope she finds some meaning beyond revenge. Um, and then finally, like at the moment of her death, um, Makashima is doing his thing where he's like, you know, torturing the person with the like, <laughs> the thing that they, the crux of their like worldview or whatever that they care most about. Um, so he's like quoting from Titus Andronicus. Um, as she's like, you know, being tortured and killed. Um, and again, I don't, you know, it's an extensive quotation. So, um, I'm just going to, you know, rely on the distilled, the paraphrased version. Um, but it seems that what he's saying in the moment, um, is like, um, I think he's talking about, um, I actually don't know the exact character, um, but it's like a death scene. Um, and it's uh, the Queen of the Gauls talking about like, oh, yeah, I'm going to let my like sons torture you and like ravage you um, because like your life was beast-like and devoid of pity and being so shall have a like want of pity. Um, and I think, again, this is just my interpretation. Um 
I think this is kind of the like crux of the failure here. Um, that like in Makashima's eyes, like her, her art lacks like the empathy and, and humanity uh, that is like the core of her father's art. Um, and that instead, like her, her whole like motivation is really just this, like it boils down to this like sadism. Um, and so like in the moment of her death, he's like, yeah, like, you know, like the sadistic person, like should have a sadistic death. Cause that's like, you know, that's what you are. Um, and just the way in the exact same way that he's like, says to Mito, like, as I, as he's taking away these like avatars that form the core of like Mito's identity, like you're just empty. That's what you are. So I'm taking these things away and like torturing you with like this reflection of like what you actually are. Um, and so anyway, long winded uh, construction there, but <laughs> that's well, what I and think. I think it there. also, it ties into her, you know, I will say her original piece. I think it is meant to be, <clears throat> at least we don't get stuff to show that it is like derivative in that same way where it's just replicating her father's uh, images, but you know, with corpses, with actual corpses now. <clears throat> um, and the thing where she talks about like seemingly struck with inspiration um, is this kind of reveling and almost mocking the, the empathy that the one friend is having for the other mm-hmm. um, that she is coming worried about her friend. Uh, that she she takes her down and shows the the dead body in the you know chemical um so that it'll be plasticized or whatever um and it's you know in that moment in like her horror at seeing her friend that she cares about dead uh is sort of being like oh such is the lot of lot of like an artist's life to be struck with inspiration like this or whatever mm-hmm. um that is it is specifically in like uh amplifying the cruelty yes and and that like uh the empathy brings more pain is like part of what that final piece seems to be about um like amplifies the cruelty makes it worse um that also is then tying into this this like failure that she has yeah uh yeah the all of the stuff with rukako is it's it's definitely tough. I think this is some of the the most brutal um stuff that we get in uh in in the whole series. Yeah. Um, it's also the most uh oh this is Manhunter, this is Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Uh yeah. Yeah, there there's there's definitely uh that at play. Um the one thing that I think is worth noting although um i don't don't feel the need to expound on it because we've already um i think done it piecemeal in all the other discussion um but the stuff about you stress deficiency like ruichi's condition um well if you want to expound on it have at it (laughs) um i mean i guess the the main thing i'll say is that like you stress deficiency um 
is obviously like an invented thing in this world, but eustress is like the, this actual concept of like, you know, good or beneficial stress. Um, the, the stress of like a, a certain amount of lack or of want, um, that does not, that, that like does good to the, and I think they, they explain this somewhat in the show too, of like, yeah. you know, uh, a certain amount of stress will improve the function of the immune system. If you overstress the immune system, the the function then like diminishes. drops, yeah, diminishes. But there is like this this uh, you know within like uh, psychology and especially uh, I think increasingly like uh, biochemical or like physical approaches to psychology. Uh, there's this idea of like a an ideal amount of stress hormone that actually is beneficial for life. Um, so, uh, and yeah, it's specifically tying it around this, like absolute, this lack of stress to such an extent, uh, that there, you aren't getting any sort of benefits and eventually sort of move into this, this comatose state. Um, which I, I think is like a little bit of, uh, you know, they're, they're doing the kind of world building stuff where it's clearly about something, but also you're like, man, this is, this is a little bit silly, like just a tiny bit silly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's definitely, I think, you know, <clears throat> is talking about that, like also within certain models of, cause I think also the show is, uh, in some ways trying to talk about like, and as it is doing a, a dystopia, it is also trying to talk about models of utopia and, and perhaps in some ways, like models of utopia that conceive of it as like a static solved problem, um, rather than, you know, I have to talk about utopia as like a process that is constantly underway. Um, there is not like the final solution of utopia. It is a, uh, utopia is in some ways found in the striving for utopia. And that is where you like create instances of it. Um, and you know, this is sort of providing the problem of what like, if there is no striving? Yeah. And the, and the eradication of having the, the utopia being the solved system that creates the eradication of stress or like negative feelings. Um, what function do those things actually have in our body? Uh, or in our like social or mental or uh, you know for, psychological lives. Yeah, for the like construction of the human being, <laughs> fundamentally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, there's like there needs to be something else going on, or else. Uh, you know, th- this is this is one of the things uh, that in some ways drove me away from Christianity when I was younger, which is that. Uh, to me, the, the concept of heaven is like a, like, I, I think that heaven as a concept is a thing that just does not make sense to me because how do you like understand the goodness that is heaven? If that's just all you have all the time for eternity. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, I would, I would argue with friends about it who would be like, well, that's like the purpose of life is that you have this time where you have like, suffering and things so that you then understand how good heaven it is. And I'm like, there's still a certain point at which you, eternity is you eternity. And the, the drop in the bucket is the drop in the bucket, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
I do not remember crying about whatever thing I cried about when I was a toddler, probably, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you especially so. won't remember it once your cold consciousness is transformed by, you know, <laughs> this ascendance yeah. to, you know, to a- angeldom or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, this is one of those where I think the show, uh, it's obviously an important point that, <laughs> so, uh, it, it gives you a lot, um, just straight away in the dialogue. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, obviously there are deep philosophical questions here about, um, you know, the like nest the necessity of like some sort of external like force opposition resistance to shape something um uh in this case like consciousness being uh you know self what have you um and that when you remove that um there's this atrophy the collapse (laughs) uh essentially of like you know, the human identity, um, and selfhood. Um, first of all, there's a collapse. Um, so that's not good. (laughs) And then, uh, the second problem is that, um, you know, the idea of like controlling yourself from, you know, doing crimes or just like controlling your own behavior. So you don't, uh, in accordance with some kind of ethical or moral standard or whatever, um, you know, that moral philosophy, essentially, um, that like the struggle of that, uh, in which again, acknowledged as a struggle, um, entails this like exploration, uh, of, you know, identity, selfhood, m- mind, that there's like a self knowledge. Um, and then, in like gaining that self-knowledge that process itself is like the process that you know of becoming um that is like important um so now what happens if you delegate that process of becoming which you know is the process of identity formation uh to this you know centralized monolithic entity (laughs) um that's going to just overwrite, uh, that's going to tell you who you are, like according to a program, uh, its own, you know, priorities. Um, so that, that's a problem of control and freedom. Um, yeah. Where, you know, we've replaced a model where people are connected to themselves and each other, um, and are like mediating their identity through, you know, the struggle with themselves and with each other. Um, to then having their own identity delivered to them um, through like a, you know, monolithic, uh, you know, monolithic inhuman. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll avoid using that word. Uh, some monolithic entity um, that's yeah. doing it with, you know, its own agenda. Um, at the very at the very least, uh, depersonalized or like dehumanized. Yes. And, you know, authoritarian and, and so on. Um, and uh, so, again, 
very it's helpful uh that the show uh you know is, is foregrounding this uh these concerns because um you know they're important <laughs> they're important to the show uh and we'll we'll have to keep them in mind as we go yeah but also it is a little bit of what i was saying about the show uh having the feeling of uh someone being mad about things in society and then doing things about it um because there's a certain amount to which like the the metaphor of it is so obvious right the creation of this is like specifically around that um there's definitely of of stuff in this show the 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 stress deficiency is the thing that feels uh slightly forced or or, or most polemical yeah yeah Um, yeah uh yeah, there is definitely parts of this show that uh, we'll just say they could be interpreted as polemical. Um, yeah, but that I agree with you uh, that that there are polemical elements. Um, yeah, and uh, we maybe we'll see more next time. Yeah, are we ready to wrap this up? I think so. Um, I think we've. I think we've uh, clocked in enough minutes here. Yeah, I'm, I'm tired and I still got to do some dishes. <laughs> oh, yikes. <laughs> so, okay. Um, next time, we will be watching episodes 8 through 16. 9 uh, through 16. If you have questions. What? Oh, yeah. 9, nine through 16. Sorry. Whatever. People already watched 8. They know that they already watched 8. <laughs> nine I'm talking through about 16. it again, people. Get ready. <laughs> um... If you have questions, write them into ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Um, I'm going to take a, a little bit of an extra moment here, even though I am tired and I want to go do dishes, to say uh, please support the network, uh, exportodd.io. Um, while this episode is, um, like, when this episode is going out, we are uh, going to be in the middle of uh, basically, I think, at least internally, and I've, I've been saying this on podcasts. Um, I'm calling it the, or we are calling it the cat appreciation tour, um, where, uh, you know, this has come up before autumn has been, been very burned out, I think on, on work. Um, and that includes being burned out on podcasts. Um, and so, uh, a number of us friends, uh, decided that for the month of July, uh, we're going to tell autumn, uh, stop, don't record anything. Don't do podcasts. Uh, and we are all, Lem is in here causing mischief. Um, <laughs> we are we are all sort of uh, coming together to like the shows will go on, um, with the exception of I think Gotham City Limits, which purely exists for like Em and Autumn to hang out anyway, um, and has always sort of been a uh, one week certificate gets canceled podcast. Um, but like uh, Em is going to be joining me on um, on ornate stairwells. Um, I know, uh, I think I will be guesting on like an episode at least of coffee and comic books. Um, so, and there's some like plans for, for some of the stuff that, uh, Autumn does with Nora as well. Um, anyway, all of this to say, uh, I hope that in us doing this, it's also like raising some awareness or making people, uh, more conscious of the fact that, um, podcasting is still like a lot of work. Um, and especially for, uh, Autumn and Nora, they are 
one, they're both trans. Uh, Autumn is disabled. Um, and they are working like, you know, service industry jobs. Um, and so the, the Patreon does go, uh, a long way in supporting them. Um, giving them like the time to even do podcasts and things like that. Um, it's this thing that that's a little bit weird because I think, uh, you know, people give to Patreon and they think about like, what's the product that I'm getting in return. Um, and that's the thing that sometimes we think about as well as like, how can we, uh, make things like more worth the while for people giving money to the network. Um, but also we, we're not maximum fun. We don't advertise. I'm not on here. We joke about how we have a squirt sponsorship. We do not have a squirt sponsorship. Not yet. Um, not yet. Yeah, we're not. I mean, squirt, <laughs> if you're interested, <laughs> reach out. I've um, been emailing him like once a week. Yeah. Nothing uh, So like, we're not trying to sell you something on these podcasts. Um like everything is just funded by the Patreon. Like neither of us really have to pour money into this Connor because there's a Patreon. Uh, and so we're like hosting fees and stuff are, are all covered through that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, all, all that to say, I encourage people to, to go and support the network. Uh, if you enjoy ghost divers, um, I know that there's not like a lot of fun ghost divers stuff in the, the Patreon feed. Uh, it would still, I would still appreciate it if you're a fan of the show, if you went and supported it, uh, and you'll get a Patreon feed where you'll get access to a bunch of other stuff and you can listen to Pondering Puton a week early. Um, you know, you can hear all the other great shows on the, the network, um, $5 gives you like exclusive bonus episodes of various things. Um, and again, it just means a lot. Uh, and also I understand a lot of people who, who listen to our podcasts are also, you know, queer and disabled and like working under paying jobs and all of that thing. Uh, and so another thing you can do is just spread the word. If you like this podcast, tell your friends. Um, I recently got somebody quote tweeting the like this week, someone quote tweeted the first discussion episode tweet uh, for Iron Blooded Orphans, being like, people should listen to this. Uh, do that. Tell people on Twitter to listen. Uh, tell your coworker who's really into anime um, and you think would be kind of chill with like one that's going to be really long and get into specifics and theory and shit uh, that they should listen to us. Um, I feel like there's some some coworkers who like anime who are not going to enjoy us, but you know the vibe. <laughs> You'll know. Mm -hmm. You'll know your coworkers who want to listen to our podcast. Tell tell tell, tell people. Spread the word. Um, we also don't like advertise on other stuff. So the really the only way that anyone finds out about us is through word of mouth. Um, anyway, that's my whole spiel. Uh, I hope you'll support the network. That's exportodd.io. Uh, e x p o r t a u d dot i o export audio but there's a there's a period before the i o um and speaking of specific podcasts that we do uh pondering Putan, that's our our like half hour we're reading through Kumari high school we joke around um it's a fun time uh or it's a complete podcast oh, sorry yeah yeah complete opposite of this <laughs> it is. 
uh, part of me creating it was like, I want to just get on the uh, call with you, Connor, and like chat and joke around and not have to like say uh, smart things about stuff all the time. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting. Um, yeah. Um, Ornate Stairwells is my movie podcast. Uh, very proud of it. They're, it's a really fun podcast. Uh, good hangout vibes. Um, and then also Around the Long Fire, uh, which is on the Abnormal Mapping uh, network, but if you go to abnormalmapping.com slash longfire, you can find it. Uh, it will be on hiatus while Em and I are doing stairwells for July, but we'll, we'll be back. Um, anyone who's listening has known that we're a little bit tired of, uh, Haim Skringla anyway. Uh, so it'll be nice to take a little break and just talk about movies. Um, which, you know, I feel like Emma has been itching to just watch movies and talk about them with me. So, It'll be good. Um, you can follow this podcast at Ghost Divers Pod on Twitter. Um, also, Ghost Divers on Ghost, but I don't really post on that anymore. Um, I am at Fox Mom Nia on basically any social media platform I'm on. That includes uh, Twitter. Uh, again, I haven't been using Ghost a lot, but co host, uh, Annie List, Letterboxd. Um, I'm on Blue Sky now, so it's foxfamnia.bisky.social uh, or whatever the, the standard server thing is. Um, all that. Where can people find you? <laughs> Y'all can find me at Rebelay on Twitter and co-host. Um, neither of which I use uh, with any frequency. Yeah, but, we, we always joke about how you're always posting, but that is a joke. Yeah, if you can still know. find me there. Yeah. It's mostly just like retweeting squirt stuff but you're the least online person i know yeah yeah that hasn't changed for uh yeah yeah like even my old parents use facebook a lot i feel like you're not on facebook a lot (laughs) no (laughs) no i am not (laughs) um anyway we're done here yeah bye bye everyone see you next time
Before we, we get further into anything else, one, do we want to do the time dot is clap? Just yes. Jump. <laughs> Number one. Yes. Okay. Let's do 30, 39. Okay. Um... I'm assuming you felt like your clap was fine. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> this is also part of the process. If we don't comment on the 
comment pointlessly on the uh you know the sound of the clap and the like yeah relative <laughs> timings that we've perceived you're you're saying this is also part of the process people people are coming in we were talking about a part of the process is when we start setting up to record <laughs> and we're on the voice thing we check to make sure it's the right microphone but then we also check to make sure that it's the correct uh, headphones, even though there's no headphone sound going to be coming out of Audacity while we're recording. It's not going to happen. Uh, we always just do that too. It's part of the process. You right. like check input and output. Yeah, it's a function that is like never utilized at all ever. Yeah, uh, but but checking that that output for the headphones like also helps me feel assured that I checked the input for the microphone. Mm-hmm. You have to complete the full routine. Yeah. So our routine with the claps is that as we clap, of course, with latency and and everything. Uh, when I hear your clap, like there's absolutely no way of <laughs> knowing how close in like actual time it was to my clap. But uh, yeah, we still just like comment that. Oh yeah, that seemed close. Yeah. Uh, if we don't. I, I'm usually saying, like, did I feel like I hit it when it said 49 or whatever? You oh, know, whatever yeah. the number, nine. That's that's really what I'm like. I feel like I did it okay. Mm-hmm. You know? Or yeah. like, mm, I fucked that one up. Yeah, me too. I hit it right when it turned nine. But also, if I clapped and I heard your clap slightly before my clap, I'd be like, something went wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if either one of us clapped... And no one, nobody heard it. Then you know what that means. Um, it, it, it didn't was make one a hand sound. clapping. <laughs> no, it didn't make a sound. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if if the person clapping heard it, then I think it would still make a sound. Right, but if neither person heard it somehow, yeah. Uh, do you do you have any beverages over there? That you'd like to check yes, on? Yes, so I do. Okay. Yeah, I, I I have a proper drink check here. Um, so one, um, I have my, my normal water bottle uh, with its little flip top lid. Uh, I flipped it up right before we recorded so I wouldn't get that on the mic. And then I also cracked open the Liquid Death because uh, I have this in here as well. Because <laughs> the bubbles are always kind of nice for my, my asthma throat. Uh, but then the real thing that I'm trying to be thematic... Those are just like standard now. I just like have both of those when I podcast usually. Um, I designed a cocktail. Um, oh, okay. And I'm calling this uh, the cloudy hue. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna give the proportions here in case anyone wants to recreate it. So in like a, a you know mixing. Like the shaker, but I'm not actually going to shake it. I'm just going to like stir up in the, the cup. Um, but into that cup, I pour the two ounces uh, of bourbon. I feel like any whiskey would work here. Um, but I specifically use bourbon. Um, then uh, half an ounce of Malort. Oh, yes. Uh, a quarter ounce of allspice dram. Okay. And then I did like just a little dash of uh, velvet falernum. I don't um, even know what that is. The last thing you said, I was like, it, it took me a couple seconds, but I was able to figure out 
probably what it was. What you mm. just said, I have no hope of figuring out what it is. Um, and then I, I stirred that up with ice, right? And then I, I poured it into a cup where I had like a large ice cube in there. And I like, you know, held back the ice that I stirred up with when I did that. Um, and then here's the final thing. So that already gets you the, the color, which is like, uh, kind of this like brownish yellow with like, maybe just like the faintest tinge of green is happening. Uh, but it is like a cloudy as well. Um, and then the final thing, and this was specifically to be in the spirit of some of the episodes we watched, uh, this week. Um, I, I cut like a, you know, if you're going to do like a twist of orange or whatever, where you like use a, a peeler and you just get like a bit of the orange peel, uh, with like a little bit of like the white as well on there. Um, I was really trying to get like deep when I did it. And then I lit a match and I held it over and squeezed it so that the, the oils sort of express out when you, when you squeeze it over you, the you match down onto the, the flame. Yeah. And then the flame sort of like, uh, shoots up for a second as like the oils burn and then fall down onto the drink. Um, this is like how you do the little, uh, you know, burn the, the orange oil over the drink. Um, and that's for the, the alcohol and then the, the flames to, you know, disperse the, the holograms. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, okay. What were the third and fourth ingredient? First, third was allspice dram. You said, yes. Um, this is actually a, a, a homemade dram that, um, Emily made, uh, but it's with allspice berries. Um, and it's basically just like a, a infused liqueur that, that you're doing. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's allspice berries, uh, rum and some sugar. Okay. Um, and then. The velvet falernum is like if you if you just type that in like velvet like you'd expect and then uh, if you start doing F-A-L, falernum you know will, like you'd yeah. expect well but if you type in velvet and then F A L I think it will give you this it's like a specific like this is like a bottle it's the name of a bottle on a shelf you know um and I feel like it's just used in like a a it's like I I think rum based it's like a little bit of an almondy spicy quality okay it's a rum based liqueur Um, indigenous to barbados yeah um so i put that in there as well i wanted to like spice up a little bit with the the malort as well so so the malort is the like little bit of madness in there Mm -hmm. does that mean that you agree that you agree with me that this is a malort show I think last time you said absinthe, but I also think Malort. Oh, okay. Right now, yeah. especially it's Malort. As it goes on, it be, might become more absinthe or just like heavier on the Malort. Like yeah. I might be like uh, our finale or, you know, the last like eight episodes or whatever. Malort shot. Just being like, I have a chilled shot of Malort. In here. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I could have sworn so, Malort was in my brain at the time and maybe I didn't see yeah. it, but like it's definitely uh yeah, it, there's there's like malort, and then there's uh, there's absinthe elements for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my my main goal was I thought like a little bit of malort in there to be this like 
like probably as the show goes on, it's going to become like heavier on the like weird bitter ingredients and stuff. Uh, but right now it's like, you know, the main thing in here is whiskey. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, then I also wanted to try and get it cloudy because it's still right now. I'm still just thinking about cloudy hues and not, I think as the co- cocktail goes on or, you know, the show goes on and I'm doing a new cocktail <laughs> and the cocktail goes on as well. <laughs> it it might start becoming more like threat levels, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right now, it's just the hue's cloudy. That's all. I love it. That should the episode description this time should just be the cocktail recipe. Yeah, I can do that. Um, my drink check. Uh, so you, you definitely, uh, you definitely beat me on this one. Uh, yeah, but no hard feelings, because uh, you're. Your cocktail was sounds great. Um, I will say I was making the cocktail and I was pulling out like the beginning of cocktail ingredients. So I grabbed bourbon and Emily was like, Ooh, can I have one? Uh, what are you making? Uh, and I started grabbing out other stuff and I like pulled out the Malort and like all spice dram and stuff. And Emily was like, I'm out. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, I don't, I don't know what you're making anymore. Uh, so I think, don't make me one yet. And then I made it and she drank it and she was like, uh, that's strong. I don't need one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and therefore perfectly, uh, you know, perfectly themed for, uh, mm. for psychopaths, uh, a strong drink with a touch of madness, uh, <laughs> and good, you know, good portion of whiskey, uh, to evoke the, you know, the, the yeah. cop show element. Um, I also have three beverages. Okay. First one is iced oolong tea. Uh, nice. Yeah. Um, Cause it's hot in Ohio and uh, I've re- I've been drinking oolong tea a lot recently for podcasting. It's good. Good caffeine. Um, it's working out and we both know I'm, I'm very superstitious. So my yeah. staple beverage, I got to keep it. I got to keep it consistent. Uh, second thing I have is a beer from a, uh, one of the bigger, like Cincinnati breweries. Uh, so you have Rheingeist, which is probably the biggest one. And then you have Madri, which is, uh, like pretty neck and neck. Uh, and Madri has an IPA called Psychopathy. Uh, for some reason, maybe it was just like our destined, uh, you know, connection, uh, yeah. telepathy for some reason. So you pick some tropical like type elements in your drink. Yeah. Uh, for some reason I picked the tropical version of the psychopathy. Cause there's one that's just like a standard. Uh, and I just like instinctively reach for it. Uh, so, you know, I think psychopathy, the name of the beer, uh, mm-hmm. connection is obvious. I really don't like IPAs typically. Yeah, I I don't like them. And also I'm allergic to, to hops where they will destroy me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I have that. But if I do, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll find out very soon. I mean, the, the, the main symptom that I get is if I drink an IPA, like even if I have like one or two, um, I will wake up with a really, really bad headache. Oh, um, yeah. As if, like, I, you know, got extremely drunk and I'm, like, really hungover. Uh, and it's just because the... 
inflammation. One of the main things probably. is that it'll, yeah, it'll it'll trigger like headaches. So, um, but uh, yeah, so I, I really don't like IPAs. Um, but the the name of the beer was just like too too good. Uh, yeah, it, it was too too accurate to the to the show that we're covering, and I committed to thematic and interesting drink checks so i i took the plunge yeah uh, so i'm gonna i'm gonna try it i haven't tried it yet i feel like we both have bitter drinks today <laughs> yeah uh yeah it's bitter it's not as bad as i thought it would be yeah I think the tropical, okay, I will say, <clears throat> apologies to Madri, the tropical aspect doesn't really come through in any meaningful way. Yeah. I guess there's a little bit on, like, <clears throat> not the aftertaste, but when you're, like, exhaling after drinking it, uh, like, my exhalation is, like, hitting my nose, and on that I can, like, smell the notes of the, it says passion fruit, orange, and guava. Um, so I can smell some like tropical notes in my breath. Yeah. Can't really taste it. Um, but I feel like it, that does kind of, seems like it's taking the edge off the bitterness slightly. Yeah. Uh, so since I'm, I'm drinking psychopathy and I am, I am mindful of my hue. I don't want it to get too cloudy from consuming all this psychopathy. Uh, so I also bought a, uh, <laughs> I also bought a, a new kind of tea today at the grocery store, uh, yeah. and it's called positive energy. <laughs> so I'm trying to, um, you know, I'm going to be <laughs> sipping on that to balance out the, the psychopathy I'm consuming. Yeah. Uh, the back of the box for this, for this tea, I'll just read it. <clears throat> Spicy Hibiscus Blossom, Positive Energy, copyright, combines uplifting black tea and guayusa to help energize your body and mind and keep you going during the day. To this, we add tart hibiscus, sweet peach flavor, warming cinnamon, and spicy cayenne pepper for a deliciously intriguing tea that's sure to leave you feeling invigorated. So I'm going to try that too. I took a couple of steps of psychopathy, so I gotta, I gotta make sure I'm, you know, mentally balanced before we get into this this discussion. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Tastes like absolutely nothing after the psychopathy. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> so I think I'm ready. Yeah. Should we record? Should we get to the episode? I mean, I mean, we're already recording. Yeah, but I hope I hope you're recording. Uh, yeah, definitely for sure. Okay, all right. Yeah, well, let's, let's continue. We'll we'll both continue recording then, and we will start the episode. Okay. Um. Uh, do you want to do a body break first? Yes, I really. Yeah. For three beverages, I really need one. Same. Okay, I'll be right back. I am back.
Hello. Hey, I'm back. <clears throat> but you heard me walk in and sit down, so you already knew that. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I got back and thought that you were already back, and so I was like, hello? <laughs> <laughs> uh, classic. Uh, and then you, you I very clearly weren't, and so then I just ate some candy while I waited. <laughs> nice. Um, what What did you, what kind of candy do you have? Uh, it was just like a gummy. Nice. <clears throat> anyway. Um, you want to just get back into it since we're <coughs> two and a half hours into this recording. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we can go ahead and uh, maybe move a little bit more uh procedurally (laughs) we've had a lot of digressions but it's all been it's all been relevant yeah um all right i'll get back into it 